It is 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm here with Ross Merriam, Tannen Grace, just for another episode of the Pioneer Podcast. Ross, how you doing today? Tannen, it's 5.30. Let's be honest. You don't live in a real-time zone. <sighs> I hope I hope that translates well over the mic, because I know you can see my face right now. <laughs> I don't know if I'm up for your shit today, Ross. <laughs> I know, like, three-quarters of the landmass is outside of the eastern time zone, but, like, half the population lives in the eastern time zone it's 5 30 fine it's 5 p.m how about that that's we'll cut the difference no that's there's a place that does that and i'm, I'm not into it you're it's not into th- it it's 5 30 on a tuesday evening now speaking of this let's be honest the sun's going okay, down sure, sure. yeah i'm so mad because i want to be able to get in a wreck around the golf after work right now and I, I i probably have to like sprint to get nine <laughs> in but um speaking of that can we just go ahead and do away with like daylight savings time and stuff? I'm just I'm so off it. Like, well, I don't want to do away with it. I want to permanently move to daylight savings time. Well, that's what I meant. I'm yeah. sorry. Let's like, yeah, let's like go away the, from getting I, like changing it. Yeah, I just don't want the sun to set at five thirty. Like, who? Yeah, it's horrible. Well, we're, it's like it, it had to do with like farmers and a bunch of other stuff. It, like, there was a never, big long process. It never had to do with farmers. No, I heard it was like that's something like com- it had to that's do. That's the common uh, story, but it's apocryphal. Um, oh well, of course you would know, and I would not. Let's yeah. be real. Um, I, I can't. I can't remember what actually happened. I know Ben Franklin was the first to suggest it. I don't know exactly when we adopted it. it yeah, but it, it, yeah, changing the clocks like it's just unnecessary. Um, and, and so uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to do away with it as long as we you know stay in the summer hours when the sun is out until seven o'clock. Uh, well, let's see, let's see how you feel about this one. If we, if we go down this line, how about we just change the metric system as well? Metric system's fine. I'm down. I'm down. Might as well just have the same one as every other country, you know? Turkey also uses the customary system. There's two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> every, 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 have, you, and, have you been to Turkey? <laughs> like, no. Are you going anytime soon? Also, like, isn't the metric system technically, like, you know, our official system? It's just that we don't actually use it. I, th- I think by, like... We don't even teach it. Like, oh, we, I remember that we, we teach it. I, no, 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 I, no. I got taught it in the fourth grade. We learned they, all the metric conversions. Yes, yes, so did I. It's like when they teach you cursive. They teach you it for, like, a week, and then you never use it again. Well, I mean, if you if you literally never use something, it, well, I mean, you should still know it, because it does come up from time to time. But you don't use it. The problem is you don't use it consistently enough for it to stick. Like you need, you need to do something like, you know, you don't have to do it every day for a while, but like every right. couple days you keep getting reminded of it for, you know, a couple months straight or a year straight, like then you, you'll retain it. But uh, yeah, we do it. We just like slam it into you for a week and then move on. And yeah, I, uh, I got a good example of this. Uh, I was like uh, chatting with my wife uh, through sign the other day and I had to sign something. I, I paused for a second and she was like, you know, waiting. And I signed it, and she was like, yeah, I can't remember exactly what word it was. And I, like, fist-pumped. And she gives me that look of, like, what? Like, like why'd you fist-pump? And I was just like, oh, I was excited I remembered that sign. And she gives me this other look, and I'm like, I don't know. I learned it, like, two years ago, and I've never used it. I've just, like, <laughs> never said this word before in sign, you know? Like, and I remembered it, so yeah. I was, like, proud of no, myself. That's an accomplishment. There, yeah. there are two ways that people use the metric system pretty frequently, though. Like, one is in the size of soda bottles. And I, I don't understand why that happened. Like, why are, why are soda bottles... So just sold it two and three liter bottles. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sure there's some explanation for it. Uh, and then everybody I know who smokes a lot of weed knows how to convert grams to ounces. <laughs> I was not ready for that. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. If, if you don't know that it's an eighth is three and a half grams, like, yeah, you haven't smoked a lot of weed in your life. But 
If you do, well, I've spoke to zero, so I don't know these things. It, it technically is twenty nine grams to the ounce, so you should be a little bit over three and a half grams. So you you always give them like the three point six. The only the, the reason that I knew um kind of like the smaller measurements, you know, like a, a meter versus a yard, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. Uh, I ran track for like five or six years. You know, that's used as the metric system. So people would be like, oh, like, what do you run the hundred in? And you would like tell them at the time and they'd be like, that doesn't seem like that fast, right? You know, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not hundred yards, hundred meters. And they were like, well, what's the difference? And I'm like, it's the entire football field, like in zones. You know? Yeah. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's line to line, not just like end zone to end yeah, zone. Yeah, like every extra meter is an extra three point three seven inches. Yeah, so, something 3. like 37. that. Yeah. So you're talking a hundred. You're talking an extra three hundred thirty seven inches. So you're talking an extra uh, almost twenty about twenty eight feet. I thought that we said no more math on this, by the way. So a little over uh, a little over nine yards. So it's like, it's like a hundred nine yards and change. Um, so like a couple extra steps. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's about an extra ten percent. So yeah. like, you know, that that's a pretty significant uh, addition to it. So yeah, see, there are plenty of ways people use the metric system tannin, and we covered yeah. length, volume, and mass. So we got, yeah. you know, what else is left? Are you trying to? It's almost like I. It's almost like I planned this, Ross, and made sure we covered all three. Yeah. So you pl- see, we use the metric system plenty. We're we're all good. By the way, I was just like thinking back to to running track and those god awful uniforms we had to wear. You with like the sh- the short, you had to wear like short. I'm talking Daisy Dukes, like short. Oh shorts. yeah, yeah, right. And you like had to have the they're, tidy whiteies. They're, they're called nut huggers, Tannen. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's not what we called them, but sure. They're called, yeah, yeah. They're called nut huggers. <laughs> so, uh, funny thing, I'll I'll, uh, I'll admit something that was like uh, I guess kind of embarrassing. I had a I had a um, so you know like baseball players are known for being like very superstitious. Oh yeah. And so, like, I'm, I'm like, honorary baseball player because I love baseball so much. Um, I had a superstition um, whenever I would go. So, like, your typical day of a track meet is, like, everybody goes, you go to the track, and, you know, like, the big grassy area, and everybody just chills in there, yeah, and you, and like, you wait your for your thing. one or two events or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I was, I was like, quote, unquote, the star. I was, like, the, the, the best runner on my track team or whatever because I hit puberty before everybody else. So, I was, like, much faster than the average kid. Is this, like, so middle school taller. track team? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I, I did a little bit in high school, but I got, like, uh, I started doing other sports and I got hurt really bad. So I like just, I just kind of gave it up. Plus my back and like knees started hurting and it's not very forgiving to run on a track when that happens. But like seventh and eighth grade, like I was like shaving, you know, like before the other kids. And so I was good, but I had this superstition and I don't know if it's superstition or just like whatever, but if I ever had to like use the bathroom, well, let's, let's say particularly number one, I just wouldn't go. I would just hold it. And I'd be like, you can go after the race. And so I guess like that urge, like I, I thought that urgency made me run faster also, or something. You also got a little extra weight that you're carrying. I, yeah, no, I like <laughs> thinking about it now. It's like illogical, right? Like I'm like, wait a minute. There's like no way this helped me, and probably multiple ways this hindered me. Yeah, you know, I'm like focusing, like holding it in, so like th- that's more muscle usage that could be like loose, and I don't know, man. But, oh yeah, but sure, it's horrible for you. Yeah, yeah, just just downing oranges all day long. You need to you need to cycle it out, you know, <laughs> like and stuff. But anyway, more about me and my running stuff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, so did you watch the Super Bowl anywhere this weekend or did you just kind of no. like, did you stay at home and watch it or, uh, my, I took a bus home from Richmond and the bus left at 8 PM. And so, so you just missed all of it. Yeah. Like we finished pretty early in Richmond. And so I hung out for a bit. I watched like the first quarter. I, I, and that's more of a Super Bowl than I've watched in like four years. I, I don't care about the Super Bowl anymore. I just don't. Um, I went to, I went to like a party kind of thing over at my best friend's house. Sure. It was, um, 
it's it's kind of like the party you get to where you start to really realize how old you are because there's a lot of people there, but there was just as many, if not more, kids at this thing <laughs> than there were adults. And I was just like, they're so loud. Like, you know, there's like eight or nine girls and they would just like run through the, they were like, you know, doing something together where they were just running through the rooms and yelling. Yeah, it's and like stuff. a dog with zoomies. Yeah, oh yeah, dude. My, mine still gets that. She's about to be four. Like, when does that stop? I'm, I'm not like complaining. I'm just like, is that like a, is that like a full life thing? It's my yeah, first dog. I, I mean, if, I think the frequency of it goes down over goes, time. Oh yeah. It, she had way more. When she was but younger. it never a hundred percent goes away. Right. So I watched the game, uh, had a couple friendly bets in, in the thing. You know, a lot of people there were like, yeah, yeah, 49ers, give me a couple points. I'm like, whatever you want, bud, I'll take it off. Kansas City's winning this game or whatever. I got a little, I got a, little, a good sweat. <laughs> I got a little worried in the first half, but I mean, like, Mahomes is absurd. Uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, the commercials were actually pretty good this year. I thought the halftime show was great. A lot of people I, were complaining heard, about it. I heard all good things about the halftime show, but my uh, my Twitter feed is very carefully uh, uh, curated. Yeah, curated. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Usually you're the other way. You're the one yeah. figuring that one out. I got the word right. Um, yeah, super, super. Like, obviously, my family loved it. You know, like, you know, coming from a, a Latina and Latina uh, family, they, they loved all that. And uh, the the New York Life commercial was pretty sweet. Uh, for people who don't know, I actually work with New York Life. So not that their commercial was actually great. <laughs> you know, so I was like, that was pretty cool. I expected it to be like, you know, maybe the cheesy side or whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever. Um, the commercials overall were great. And the game actually was pretty good in the second half too. So I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, coming back from ten down, scoring three touchdowns in the last eight minutes of the game is is a pretty cool game. <laughs> have, have you have you seen what they've done this postseason overall? Oh yeah, they were behind by ten in every game. Yeah, they were behind by twenty four. One of them was twenty four nothing. Twenty four nothing against Houston. They scored forty one. Answer. They're behind ten nothing against Tennessee. Won pretty easily. They were behind by ten in the fourth quarter. In this one, they won. See, that's that's the, apparently you're supposed to only be ahead of them by like three. Or let them be winning and they'll mess up. But my favorite for the the entire postseason was uh, when the Texans were up. Was it 21 nothing or 24? 24. Yeah, so they're up 24 nothing. I text Jonathan Joe, who's like, you know, like just loves Houston sports, right? Like has like eight hats of every team, you know? And I text him and I'm like, you liking this game? And he's like, oh yeah, buddy. I I don't know, man. We win this game. You know, sky's the limit, blah, blah, blah. And then I messaged him again in the fourth quarter, and I was like, so we're not talking about this game ever again, right? And he's like, yeah, no, this, this didn't happen. <laughs> we're never talking about this again. <laughs> so are you well-rested from your trip? I know you had to do uh, versus live. I talked to you for a second Monday. You sounded pretty tired. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I got in close to 1 a.m. Bus came in a little bit late um, on Sunday, but getting to sleep in my own bed Sunday night helped. It's just... The, the schedule has been a little wonky the first par- part of this year. We were, when, you know, back-to-back tournaments, then two weeks off, and now we're back-to-back tournaments again. I would have much preferred an every-other-week kind of thing. Alternating, yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- it's just the turnaround. Like, I'm thinking, I'm taking a train to Philly, so and the train leaves Roanoke at 20 past 6 in the morning. So I got to be up super early Friday morning, which we and we're doing versus on Thursday. Don't fight any curbs this time. Yeah, I got to have my uh, got to have my deck in. When uh, deck selected Wednesday night, so I can get cards on Thursday, um, and so and like I I gotta get my article done, do verses live, record this podcast, and, and all of my other magic stuff. You know, like I'm trying to think, well, like, when am I getting testing in for, for this tournament? Um, it can be kind of tough. So it, it's just just the turnaround is is a little rough, but you know I'll live. Man. It almost sounds like magic is your full-time job, Ross. Yeah, I know. But for a while, like, you know, when we had four people here, three people here doing verses, versus, yeah. I would at most be there once a week, right? And 
some there was a time there was a six month span, almost eight month actually, when we were doing it a little bit differently, and we we did a five smaller videos with two people each week. So I would only be in the office once every week or once every other week. Uh, and so there was just, you know, now obviously I, I'm just doing more work, which is great. You know, magic content yeah. and, you know, it pay, pays pretty well for those of you, at least in terms of like, you know, an hourly wage, if you try to compare Yeah, your hourly two. wage is very good. Yeah. yeah. But the, like there's a very, you know, small cap on the number of hours of work you get right. to do. Yeah. Uh, so obviously like I'm very happy to be doing more work. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's just getting used to balancing that with the, the traveling and the preparing for events is, is a little bit different, but you know, we've been, de- we've been at two people basically for, uh, you know, a little over a year now. You think I would be used to it, but you know, I'm, I've never been that good at managing my time. <laughs> you're taught you're, you're preaching to the choir here, buddy. Yeah. I've just never been very good at it. I, th- I think it comes from being a kid who naturally took to school really well. Like, so I could just not like, I could procrastinate every assignment and, you know, put bare minimum also, effort in for like the first 10 years of school. And like, you know, I just don't, didn't spend any of those formative years developing any sort of skills to manage my time well, and work hard. Also, like, it almost sets you up for failure in that way, in that, like, the structure is given to you. Like, you never have to make a decision for yourself in that, in that, in that realm. Like, oh, they, yeah. they, they tell you where to be at all times, and then they're like, make sure your homework is done by this time tomorrow, or by <laughs> this time Friday. And you're like, yeah, like, I'll get that done Thursday night at, you know, midnight or whatever, get up and go to class. Like, you get what I'm saying? So it's like, not like it sets you up for failure, it just doesn't give you that incentive to learn that skill. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like eventually you have to learn. I, I, you know, I worked harder when I was in college and stuff, but still had, you know, I still left Same. the last minute pretty frequently. And uh, Same. <laughs> with, with magic, like obviously you just can't do that because getting in the volume of preparation is really important. So you just need like the, you need to start early. And it's also like really nice to be able to take the day before kind of off and relax and sort of, uh, get yourself in a good headspace for the tournament. So, you know, th- there's so many advantages to getting everything done as early as possible. Uh, and that, you know, again, like I've been doing this for almost a decade. You'd think I'd be better at it by now. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, you, you made me you made me think about the, uh, the grading thing that's going on, the little Twitter uh, yeah. magic thing, you know, what's your grade on all this? And I didn't do one, but I knew that if I had to give myself grades, the lowest would be like, the preparation. preparation. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah me, like, you know how too. much... Me too, yeah. yeah. It would be like a flat F. <laughs> like, t- team events, D. Everything else, F. <laughs> like, like, team events are like, I at least, I at least look like I got my shit together for my team. Yeah. You know, but... When, when you just got to play Grixis Delver and Legacy every event, eventually got to the point where you'd played the deck enough you didn't need to prepare, and then your preparation yeah. was good, and without that weakness, yeah. you just never lost. Yeah. So, I was going to say, how I that works. my... Yeah, you. I remember you talking about this once. You were like, the preparation is hilarious. It would be like the night before, you know, me, you, and Brennan would get to an event. Just like you, I remember this, we'd, we'd share a hotel room, and y'all be like talking about massive overlays of your deck. You'd be like, you know, hey, do I change this? Like, what, what you know, what matchups am I worried about? Blah blah blah. And y'all be talking a lot. I'm switching between maybe this deck and this deck. I got x amount of games in here. Win percentage is there. And then you'd be like, Tannen, how you doing? I'd be like, Ross, I, I'm down. Which one of these two cards should make my sideboard? And that was like my hardest discussion. <laughs> yeah, every every week your sideboard changed by two cards every yeah. tournament, and like it was always out of the same group of like twenty five. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, So you know, like uh, you know the famous red box that like Patrick Sullivan's yeah. known for having. He has like every burn deck of every format in like you know or whatever and, and in the box. A bunch of different cards. Yeah. Yeah. I, for, for those who don't know it, I had that with me at every legacy tournament. I would just bring a box that had like 
all of the cards I could ever want for Legacy. Like, you know, you know like, weird, obscure sideboard cards. Like, every, every tournament was like, is this the time I get to play Disrupt? Or, like, some oh, of the weirdo, yeah. some cool uh, gacha card. Yeah, what's what's the one? It's it's from, like, Odyssey or whatever. It's, like, one blue mana instant. You get to change divert. the target. Yeah, Divert. Yeah, that the, was divert. the one you always wanted to play. Yeah, I always wanted to play Divert because there was a point in time I registered them in an event, and I top-aided an event where um, Decay was just, like, everywhere in yeah, the format. Him to Turok was really popular. A lot of Shardless. In this event. Yeah, and him to Turok is really popular, and and, and uh, what do you call it? Thoughtseize, and oh boy, we got some people <laughs> on those weekends. That was that was a good gotcha moment, yeah. or whatever. But uh, which one of those feels feels the best to to divert? Is it? It's got to be one of the two mana ones. Um, so abrupt decay felt the best because most of the time, if you like, if you were playing it shardless, what I would do is I would like try to set myself up where uh, I didn't get thoughtsies. I would try to like spell pierce with thoughtsies. And then they would just like always slam a Termoglyph on two, right? Like if you didn't have anything, they would just always slam a Termoglyph. And then I would purposely like have it to where, you know, I, you know, my turn two, I'd have like two mana or whatever. I'd be like, you know, Delver go or whatever. Or, you know, if I had three mana, like, you know, young Pyromancer go. And I know they're abrupt decaying it. And they would just like tap two lands and like put their abrupt decay in the yard. And I'd be like, hold on. <laughs> it's going to go there eventually. Just no, hold on. <laughs> but just there's a different target. It's yeah. got a buddy coming with it. Bloody. That turbo wave is mine. <laughs> or that death rate shaman is mine. <laughs> you know, or and, something like that. So. And in, in that matchup, especially, I think the tempo mattered a lot more than card advantage. Like if the game went long, they would eventually resolve like a shardless into ancestral and win the game. So you really oh, need yeah. to get him dead. So I think the tempo advantage from diverting an abrupt decay, even though like him might feel better, it, it's just yeah. fun hemming people. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just a fun card to resolve targeting your opponent. Oh yeah. Uh, um the the best thing that ever happened for that matchup was when people stopped playing that deck. Uh, oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. That, that wasn't as good for elves because I loved playing against them. They always thought they would be so good against me. They're like, yeah, just kill all your stuff, and I was like, no, you don't. Like, yeah. you, you didn't. This was before fatal push. Like, you you didn't even have a, a two mana a dis- one mana removal spell. Yeah, disfigure. Yeah, they, they had, disfigures they, in the sideboard. Yeah, they had like sideboard two. Because I played that too, because it killed DRS as well. So and it was like they were never out; they weren't out grinding me. My deck, you know, like their ancestral cost one mana and four turns. Mine just cost one mana and sometimes drew seven cards. Yeah, you were just way more efficient at every aspect of the of yeah. the game than them. Like that, yeah, I wouldn't want to play against that. Deck. Oh yeah, like, it was you're... it was the best matchup. I just obliterated it. Almost every shardless opponent I ever. Played you want to cast a three mana card that doesn't do anything? Sure. <laughs> sometimes you would just draw a natural order and the game ended because you got World Spine Worm or Progenitus and they couldn't kill it. And yeah, the game ended. All right, so speaking about Magic Ross, um, and speaking about the format that we're known for covering, Pioneer, uh, I'm having some sensory overload from this weekend. There is quite a lot of information, and I know you're excited about this. There's so many numbers, Ross. I'm looking at my screen right now. It's just spreadsheets of numbers. And I know you're excited. I'm not. Oh, I am a fan. I, I, I had to spend about you know two minutes for, to the audience uh, explaining to Tannen what the the bounds on Max Dorshan spreadsheet exactly meant and the, and the math behind them. Yeah. I mean, like I, I have no problem admitting I'm one of those guys. I have no problem asking for directions. Oh, yeah. you know, like yeah, when I look, I, I value my time more than looking smart. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. like if you watch, you've watched enough magic where I'm just like, it's like turn two or turn three. I'm like, yep, we're done here. <laughs> Go to the next game. <laughs> like I'll save you some time and me some time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at these spreadsheets. We got so many tournaments. We knew this was going to be a big week. And we knew that the metagame was about to shift pretty dramatically from where it had been over the last month. And I've got to say, it did. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, before we start diving into this, I want everybody to know um, there's going to be a lot of links in the show notes this week. We're going to make sure that all that happens because we're going to try to explain stuff as much as we can, but we would be spending almost the entire show explaining everything if we talked about that. So we're going to try to talk about as much as we can. 
Um, and you can find the links in the show notes and whatever your program is that you use to listen. So hopefully you can kind of follow along because I'm not gonna lie, it took it took a while to find all of this. It's the other thing too, because it's on multiple different websites and stuff too. So yeah, uh, no, there, there's definitely a, just a lot of data to parse through. So we might as well just get into it. Uh, we're we're going to start with Players Tour Brussels. Uh, this was the larger of the two Players Tours. Right. Uh, it was also sort of the... Did, did the, this one, technically, like for people in the United States, did this one start before... Yeah, it had to have started before. Yes. So, uh, yeah, because uh, I actually had a problem sleeping one of the nights and was up at, like, I think I woke up at, like, 3 a.m. that day. So I got to watch, like, the entire day of coverage. Like, I woke up and they were, like, in the middle of pack one, you know, of, like, drafting or whatever, which, by the way, the set's great if you haven't drafted it yet. Um, anyway, so, yeah, got to watch a lot of this coverage. Was really cool getting to watch it because it, it felt like a pro tour. You know, it's same kind of structure, same kind of feeling. Um, it was like a pro tour with Grand Prix coverage or, like, somewhere in between. And uh, there was a lot of that this weekend. Like you said, we got to cover multiple of those and the Open, but we're starting in Brussels. Yeah, uh, and Brussels, I think, really exciting to look at this top eight because it's super diverse. There's two Bant Spirits and then six other decks. Um, I think, you know, everybody knows at this point, Demir Inverter was the deck of the weekend, was more popular at both players' tours than I sort of expected. I, you know, I, the metagame just got a little bit further than I thought it would. Um, and, and it, you know, people figured out the inverter deck. Um, it, it did quite well across the weekend here. It, you know, losing in the finals in the hands of Piotr Golgowski, who you know told everybody half a day before the lists were supposed to be submitted that he, what he was playing and had a cyber guide, I think, in, in his patron in his Discord uh, for his patrons. So yep, you know, just you know, put his deck face up on the table hours before you know anybody had to submit their deck list and said, "Come at me." and was a single game away from taking down the yeah. tournament. Uh, so incredibly impressive performance from him, especially on the heels of winning the last yeah. Epic Championship uh, in 2019. Uh, but, the you know, we've, we've got some interesting ones here, starting with the winner's deck list. This is Eol Larson, Soul Tide Delirium. And if you look at the, the um, you know, the breakdown of the win percentages of all these decks and these spreadsheets. These come from Max Dorshin on his blog, put in a lot of work this weekend. Yeah. And, Thanks, Max. Yeah, you know, thank you very much. Made everyone, uh, um, all of our jobs so much easier yeah. as content producers. And I'm sure if anybody testing for Pioneer this weekend, um, you know, the data like this is invaluable. And Soul Tide Delirium had, you know, has a win rate that is miles above the rest of the field. You know, at it's a, it's a small sample size, but we're at close to 70% to the point where the confidence interval lower bound is above every single other deck's win rate except for three. And so like a lower, at 95% confidence, a lower bound of 57% is honestly ridiculous. Like I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if that is like ever happened because I don't think decks, uh, you know, this was like, you know, all these decks are over 1% of the metagame and we're talking about an over 300 person tournament. Um, so like, you know, at least a handful of people playing them, it's not just like one person and, uh, you know, these kind of win rates, they just don't happen at this level with, you know, five, 10 people playing a deck. And the other thing about this is like the deck's new, right? Like, yeah, I get it. We had soul tie mid range and like, you know, Golgari mid range at the beginning of the format, but this one is looks and feels like s similar in some ways, but different in a lot of ways. Like you're seeing Nissa who shakes the world, a card that didn't really show up in those decks. Uh, you're seeing four Uro from the new set Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. And I'll say this: you and I both said that we, you know, we both thought this this card 
underperformed up until this weekend. It definitely showed itself in Standard, and it definitely showed itself in Pioneer. But I think what what really put this card over the top is it got to be in a deck where it gets to shine, and the card that's enabling it, which I'm going to talk about in a second, also shines with the rest of the deck. Like, you're not just trying to make Uro good. And if you look at his list, some of the only four ofs in this list, well, the, the only two four ofs that are creatures are Uro and Seder Wayfinder. And this is, this is what did it for me. When I saw him cast his first Seder Wayfinder and turn over Uro, I was like, it was like, uh, what's the meme where like you know, the brain gets real big <laughs> yeah, and busts the, out of the head? The, I was just like, Steve Jobs. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just perfect because you're looking at a deck that also has Traverse the Uvenwald in it, also has Ishkana Graph Widow, also has Embercool, the Promising, you know, Tireless Tracker, still finding you know more lands for that kind of thing. So, and you're looking at you know Jay's Friends Prodigy and flipping that faster. So, you're looking at a deck, and I mean, look, you're looking, you're even seeing Grizzly Salvage in this deck as well. So, you're looking at a deck that. All of these cards are good on rate by themselves, but make each other card better. Yeah, uh, um, and you know that's been true of Delirium decks in the past, but Uro is the one that really ties the room together. Because even though you know Escape may look like a Nambo with Delirium, this is not a like dead serious Delirium deck. We only have the one Ishkana, we only have three Traversal involved, you know, and then the one Emrakul for cards that play off of types in your graveyard. So, you know, five of them in the entire deck. You're, you're not reliant on achieving Delirium and achieving it quickly. We're not playing Grim Flare because we're not Brennan Candia. You know, so... Well, you know, it's just like a byproduct, right? Yeah. Like, it's just like, you just get this extra. And I think that makes sense because the Delirium cards haven't proved themselves to be super powerful. Ishkana in particular. Like, the, the aggressive decks are better than they were you know, in standard. This is not a card that shuts a lot of people down. It's pretty good as a one-of. You know, you still want it. You know, cards like Traverse the Ilvenwald, not as awesome in Pioneer as they are in standard, where this, you know, in its initial mode, effectively acts like an Enters the Battlefield tap land. Because it's a land that costs a mana. And that those kinds of things are really punishing for Pioneer decks in the way they aren't as punishing in standard decks. So the card gets a little bit worse. So the Delirium package as a whole was just worse in Pioneer than it was in Standard, which, you know, is obviously going to be true because it's basically like, you know, a block-constructed deck. Um, so those decks just ended up not working because the payoffs weren't there. Uro is an incredibly powerful payoff that pays you off for playing the same enablers that you were using for Delirium. And so, you know, it's really this card that elevates the deck by a, a you know considerable margin, and it also turns it into more of a ramp deck because you want to be able to take advantage of that initial mode of just exploring and gaining three life. So, you know, we see the Nissas. We're better able to ramp to our one Emrakul, which has gotten a lot better in this metagame because Emrakul is absurd against Inverter. Do you know how easy it is to kill your Inverter opponent <laughs> with Emrakul? Uh, explain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh, just unbelievable. So, you know, ramping that card is better right now than it has been in previous formats or previous metagames in Pioneer. So it made a lot of sense to move into this ramp direction. Obviously, like, Nissa is great. Um, and, and, you know, we were expecting a very aggressive metagame, low to the ground. We did see a good number of aggressive decks. Uro is insane against them. I played yeah. against a, a Bant, or not Bant, a Simic ramp deck in Richmond. I just could like, if they cast this card on turn three, I was like, oh, I'm dead. Like, I'm dead. My opponent went and like, they went like turn one Arboreal Grazer, turn two cast Uro, turn three cast Cavalier of Thorns, and it puts the cards in the graveyard. So turn four they escaped the Uro. Like, I just couldn't. I can't beat that draw in a million years with any red deck. To be fair, that's like probably one of the best draws in standard. 
<laughs> well, this was in Pioneer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. still. That's still one of the best card draws in Standard. Yeah, but no. yeah, it's still very so, good in Pioneer. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a very strong curve. But, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a curve that you can get. And honestly, like, if that Cavalier of Thorns had been a Seder Wayfinder, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, same, same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, to just turn two Seder, turn three, or oh, turn four, escape it. Like, you know, if you have a... I think either you don't take the... Yeah, I guess you have to not take the land and have a Fable Passage. Or I guess you can chump block with the, the Wayfinder. Which, like, yeah. if it's I, like you're almost correctly not attacking. You're supposed to not attack into this. Like, why are we even playing the game now? Yeah, no, the, the card is just absurdly good against aggressive decks here. And the, the other important part of it, the mana base for these Delirium decks has always been super painful. You know, they're, they are playing, this one's playing nine Shocklands. Um, so you deal yourself quite a bit of damage. The life gain just is so valuable. It, it really is. This card is just perfect in this deck um, and, and really sets it off. So, uh, you know, the, this is this is sort of the deck to me that we're t we have to think about this week. Like, just how good is this deck? Because, yeah, like the numbers on it right now are really good, but it's still only like four or five people that played it, right? Also, like, it definitely, it's one of those things, you wonder how much extra percentage points it gets from being an unknown quantity. Yeah, being an unknown quantity, being played by a bunch of, you know, the better players in the room. Yeah, right. Joel, like Joel Larson, for people, if you if you haven't been around Magic, if you only started the last couple of years, you might not know who he is, or very much you're like, oh, I know of this name, because he took a couple of years off, uh, you know, did some university stuff, like, tried to play a couple other games, like, when Artifact was a thing, the game, not the card type, he won the very first, like, Artifact tournament, and then the game died, you know, and, like, some other games that he was getting involved with, so he's just a very good gamer, Yo Larson is like one of the better players of the last what seven eight years. He's got a Pro Tour win, a Pro Tour Finals, like yeah. So you know, and, and I'm sure the other people playing this deck were also you know very accomplished players. I don't know exactly who it was. So when when we look at these like lower win rate rounds and upper win rate rounds in the Max Dorsion, um spreadsheet, like that those are bounds for this tournament, right? They are not. They don't tell it. They don't say that this deck is going to maintain that win rate for future tournaments when it's being played by more of the field. So you know, a lower you know, being played by more people means it's being played by some of the weaker players in the field, and it, you know, with giving people time to prepare for it and sideboard effectively against it, learn how to play against it. So you know, that number has to come down. You'd have to expect, but how much is it going to come down? How real is this deck? That's my, that's honestly my number. It's my number two question after the obvious. You know, how do we beat Tamir Inverter? Because Inverter is going to be the most played deck in Phoenix. It's going to be the most played deck in the Pioneer portion of the field in uh, Philadelphia. So, like Inverter is public enemy number one, but this to me is number two because it looks like a complete breakout deck. The weird thing is, like, look at this deck list and tell me on paper how you think it matches up against Inverter. See, here's the thing. I, I would think that you're behind looking at paper, but I watched the games. Yeah. And it actually felt ahead because the thing is, is like you get to operate on multiple, especially after game one, you get to operate on multiple different axes. Like you have, you have thought sees plus you have like disdainful strokes and mystical disputes and stuff like that. But in like, you know, duress, if you want another duress, but you also have like a clock in this deck. Like you have, you know, Jace clocking them and bringing stuff back or like you're attacking for a lot with Uro, because like this is a creature that can actually attack through an inverter as well. That's another thing is like sometimes they just have to invert like seven cards in their deck and they just have this six six flyer and you're like, well that thing's freaking huge. Like what am I supposed to do about this? Yeah. You know. And the more I thought about, it, I'm like, this is a deck that actually probably matches up okay against them. 
Yeah, when you think about it more, and I had the same reaction as you did. Like, on paper, I was like, how does this deck beat Inverter? It doesn't look like it's particularly fast or particularly disruptive in the matchup. But honestly, I think that I think it, we might be missing the boat in, in our first pass of how to beat Inverter. I think they're actually very good against the low-to-the-ground decks, because that's where Thassa's Oracle and Inverter are really good speed bumps and where their pushes are at their best. I think if you just be you know play this game to out mid range them and just beat the value that dig through time gives with just enough disruption to keep the combo at bay some amount of the time, I keep them fair. Yeah, yeah and then the thought seizes plus some counter spells in the sideboard are probably enough to do that. You know, the inverter deck doesn't kill that quickly that often. Like you know, it it doesn't have a ton of card selection. You know, they usually play some omen of the seas and four ops early, and they have dig late. But they're not digging before turn, you know, four at the earliest, probably turn five. Um, so, you know, they're not comboing you usually until turn six or later. That's at the point at which Emrakul is online. Emrakul will probably KO them. Um, so you can just, you know, race to Emrakul as well with, you know, turn three Uro, turn four Nissa, turn five Emrakul. Uh, especially if you, you know, you've achieved Delirium and you can traverse for it, things like that. So, yeah, I, I think we might be, you know... I think we might be looking at this mirror deck a little bit incorrectly, and we should just be worried a little bit more about you know beating their interaction and a little bit less worried about beating the combo. Uh, and that, and that's what this deck does. I don't think this deck is losing a fair game to to inverter ever. Yeah, and like you know, one thing that I even look at the more I look at the deck, it's like there's little parts too that can kind of gum up the works against or like kind of mess with inverter in small ways, like actual scavenging ooze the more i think about it like just having scavenging ooze in play it makes it to where like they have to have a third piece in their hand right like they can't just have thassa's oracle in their graveyard and inverter their deck because then you're like all right well give me the thassa's oracle you know like give me the piece out of there and then like good luck winning with those cards if you don't already have that piece in your hand or like and then it like so then you have to put more pressure on them to have another piece and then now they have to get through disdainful stroke they have to get through mystical dispute you know what if you just thought seize them like after this happens, and and that, and that makes it hard for them to like play their oracle out early. Maybe set up their draws for a later turn, be a speed bump, although not much against this deck. Um, but like sometimes they just like to play that card, get a little bit of selection. If they do that against you, you can kill it, exile it. Now they have to find another one, which they don't normally do. Same is true for Leyline of the Void. Like they don't want to play their pieces out aggressively against that card. If they hold them, that means you can thought seize them. So you know you get some you that attacking them from multiple angles helps quite a bit. So yeah, the, like the, you know, it, I, I I'm not saying this deck is a slam dunk against Inverter, but I bet I the more I look at it, the more I think it, it more than holds its own in the matchup, and it just seems awesome against creature decks. Yeah, like if if you draw like you know a Thoughtseize or a Fatal Push early, depending on which version of creature deck it is, you mess up their stuff just enough to get stuff going. You have four Uro, like you said, like you said, when someone cast it on turn three, even if it wasn't in play, like you just felt like you lost, right? Yeah, because like I felt like it was going to be hard for me to grind through their disruption because at some point they would get to the point where they could escape it. And then I would have to grind through that. And then they'd gain a little bit of extra life and they've drawn extra cards. So like it just it just it keeps coming and coming and it gives them this inevitability. And it's an inevitability card that also does things early. So it's just effective at every stage of the game. It, it was a nightmare, a nightmare for red decks. I was going to say, Ross is talking from the point of view of he played a mono-red deck this weekend yeah. to a fifth-place finish, by the way. Congratulations. I know it, you know it's not the finish you wanted, but still a really good showing. Yep, yeah. Uh, um, 
a, a particularly good showing from my teammates, but we'll we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, shout out to Opulent Palace, by the way. One copy of Opulent Palace in the deck. You and I have been talking about this, like especially in these decks where you're looking at double black, double green, and then cards that also have blue in their casting cost, and you want to be able to hold up blue in the uh, in the sideboard games. You have stuff like Mystical Dispute and uh, Disdainful Stroke. So like decks. I mean, sorry, lands that tap for three different colors, kind of important. Oh yeah, no, I, I like I like those lands, the tri lands in small numbers, and so I'm I'm pretty happy to see the one opulent palace. I think it just makes the rest of the mana base a lot smoother. It's so easy for this deck to play an ETB tapped land on turn one, you know, uh, unless you're like against an aggressive deck. So uh, I'm I'm happy to see that one of, and it just makes things, especially in a 23 land deck, like it's hard to have your color requirements hit everything with just 23 lands. Yeah, love seeing good mid-range decks too. That means we have a healthy format. We have we have, we have like combo mid-range aggro. It kind of sucks that the best deck of the format is is combo plus mid-range. You know, it gets to, it gets and control. I mean, like it just gets to play every for, for, form. So I guess we could kind of transition a little bit into uh, talking. I guess a little bit about about the mirror inverter from this weekend. It was everywhere, right? Like you know, if you look at the 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 results from. Um, I'm sorry, Brussels. Yeah, like it was second place, like you said, from Canister. The guy really put his money where his mouth was. He said, I'm going to play this deck. Here's everything that's going. Um, if you look at the... Uh, I'm trying to find the top eight exactly from Nagoya, because it was... There were five of them. Yeah, it was five of them, the top eight of Nagoya, uh, including the... What do you want to call the other version? Like, they call it the Mirror Inverter, but it only has... We call it Devo- Inverter Devotion. Yeah, so like the mono blue version of this. So people haven't seen this... It's literally the mono blue devotion deck. Like we're looking at Harbinger of Tides, Merfolk Trickster, Thassa's Oracle, Brazen Borrower, Gadwick, you know, Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, Wizard Retort, four Leyline of Anticipation in main. And then the only other card in the deck, Inverter of Truth. The only black card. So it's just mono blue devotion with Jace, Wielder of Mysteries. So interesting deck. It's got Nykthos Shrine to Nyx in here, four of them. So you can get really big Gadwicks. Just draw your whole deck, find the combos, find extra copies of the combo. Uh, a lot of cool cards in the sideboard that you're looking at here. I mean, Thassa's Oracle helps you dig towards Nykthos. I played this deck on Versus Live today, and it's it seems pretty cool. Um, the two drops are pretty bad against the other mid-range decks, so I would imagine it get, I played it against the Soltai Delirium deck, um, and the two drops just didn't attack very well. Wait, did it? No, I played it against Jeskai Fires. I'm sorry. We played it. We played two kind of fun decks against each other. Um, and I did, like they they didn't provide a ton of pressure. Um, they're pretty good against the aggressive decks, but uh, the ability to just generate a lot of mana was really really helpful. You could go off with counter backup or, or you know go off twice almost. So uh, you know that that Nykthos is still one of the most powerful cards in Pioneer, and, and I kind of agree with Sam Black that blue now has the best tools for finding Nykthos. Now, now that green doesn't have Once Upon a Time and Oath of Nissa. Um and so these blue devotion decks are definitely something to explore because there's probably still room for improvement. But as for Demir Inverter, like it, it was about if you combine the two tournaments together, it was like fifteen percent ish of the meta game. So you're looking at like one in seven, and instead of you know, so out of sixteen, one in seven, you're going to get like two or three in the top eight. Instead, we had six across the two top eights. Yeah, and you said before earlier in the show that. It showed up, you know, in a higher number than you expected. You know, it showed up a little bit more. This is about what I expected. I expected it to be the most popular deck. I expected it to be very good. I expected the numbers to be, you know, it's like I would not be surprised if it won every event. 
You know, those wouldn't surprise me. Okay, if you go back to the show last week, I was the one that said that Inverter would win. Okay, let's get that straight. You did. You did. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not refuting that. I'm just saying I thought the deck was going to be very popular. I actually tried to convince you to play it uh, over the weekend because I was like, man, I think it's just the best deck. Because here's the thing: we don't need to go super in depth on this deck because you know there's a lot of stuff out there about it now. Blah blah blah. It's so hard to interact with. Like, yeah. Like in the ways that you interact with them, like people are like, there's this big debate, you know, because people are bringing in um, graveyard hate against them because you know, like it doesn't give them the opportunity to just put the card in the graveyard and their deck and then just cast one of their win conditions out of the graveyard. It also slows down dig through time when you do that. But we also saw that help them in some, in some ways too. It, it hurts with Oracle helps with Jace. Yeah. Because if you want to Jace them, then like, you know, you have to have very few cards in your library. Um, and sometimes like it can take a little bit, but if they have your graveyard exiled, you can land your Jace, untap, play inverter, activate Jace uh, and win the game. But with with Oracle, it hurts because it means that, like like you said, you can't have the Oracle in the graveyard, play Inverter, and then have inevitability. Uh, you have to play both of them, and you have to play both of them on the same turn. So it can slow them down. So I like those kinds of things if you have a clock. You know, you you can't get in the mindset of like what card can any deck play or any deck of X colors, you know, play that really hampers them. You really have to think about your specific deck. And if you're really clocking them, that kind of graveyard hate, the rest in pieces, Leyline of the Void effects, not Tormod script effects, I think can be quite good. Um, if you're not really clocking them, like if you're Azorius Control, I'm not as big of a fan. Though forcing them to commit six mana to combo with Oracle can help you in the counter war, especially because they have to Oracle seconds here, disputes are better, uh, things like that. So there still might even be an argument there. But you, so you really do have to think, and there's no real card that just shuts down the combo that they don't have a, a good answer to. Maybe you said before we started Gideon's Intervention, which there was a one of in the Jeskai Fire sideboard, by the way. Uh, yeah, like, Gideon himself, too. The three-mana yeah, Gideon. People that, are playing you know, that, but like they all have yeah. downfalls or, or stuff like that to, to deal with it. So it's not, you know, none of these are slam dunks. So, um, you know, I that's why I'm saying, like, I think we have to be less concerned with the combo. Because they're not, like, they're playing a lot of disruption in their deck. They're not playing a ton of ways to dig through it. They have Oracle, like, four opt, dig, and two, you know, you know, Omen of the Sea. And dig is not setting them up for those quick combos. So it's, like, I played against Inverter five times last weekend. And, you know, my deck might be the one that is most vulnerable to them just slamming, um, you know, playing some disruption, slamming Inverter on four, and having the Oracle in hand. Like I don't disrupt their hand at all. I don't counter any spells. They don't have anything to worry about. Just keep their life a little high and slam the the combo. I don't think they ever did it against me in a single game, which means they like, they just don't draw it that often. Yeah, you, it's like it's like a it's like the ongoing joke in in uh, in poker about like you always remember your your horrible beats, but you never remember like when they just don't have it. You know what I mean? So like w- when it does happen to you, when they just like have the splinter twin on four, quote unquote. You know, you remember that, but like you don't remember the other seven games where they like went through 30 cards looking for their first copy of, like, Inverter or whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so let's maybe just start, like, you know, beating them with our, our regular game plan. Like, just concentrate on beating their fair game plan with just enough, uh, you know, disruption to keep them honest with the combo, like like the Salt Delirium deck did. So, uh, you know, th- that's what I would be thinking about this, this week is trying to beat them on that axis. Uh, and then, you know, Include a few good cyborg cards, sure. Especially, you know, uh, the other thing that's good about Leyline and Recipes is that they shut down Dig Through Time. You know, it's hard to get to eight mana before you cast a thing. Um, so that really helps you fight both their fair game plan and their combo. Um, so, you know, those things can be good even out of, you know, mid-rangey kind of decks. 
Speaking of mid-range decks, I want to talk about the third place deck from, from Players Tour Brussels. This was the biggest surprise to me. Um, the small surprise because of the pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's both big and little, depending upon your, your lens. So the pilot is uh, Mr. Dan Stance Revolution himself, Paula Victor Dama de Rosa. Uh, I got third place. Big surprise, Paula does well at a Pro Tour again, or whatever you want to call these things. Um, I think it's very debatable that he might just be the best player of all time. Now. Oh, he's definitely uh, in the conversation. Yeah. And that's all you can ask for. The thing that's surprising to me is the deck that he chose, and it did well. I, I would love to see his actual record, because I would be surprised if he 6 0 limited, because he played Niv the Light. He, he went 8 2 in the constructive portion. Or he went 8 2. That's a testament to Paulo. I've got I've to believe. Their version was much different than the average version of Niv the Light. I will say that. But overall, Niv the Light did not do well this weekend, and I don't think the metagame is set up well for the deck to do amazing. The best deck, the deck that it was best against, doesn't exist anymore. Like, no one's playing Chunky Red. Yeah. You know, the, like this deck was designed to beat that. The Niv decks did horribly. You know, look at their yes. combined their combined win rate across the two Pro Tours was forty four percent. Yeah, which is bad in a pretty big sample size. Their upper bound is still below fifty. So now, for, for this tournament, it was a horrible choice in general. But like you said, th their list is quite different. Their list is quite different. I'm going I'm to go through a couple of the different things. You have three Gilded Goose main. This is the big one for me. Enabling turn three Niv Mizzet and giving yourself that little extra bit of a clock. You know, that extra turn. Because, you know, it can be an issue when you, you have to tap out for your Niv-Mizzet. You draw, like, you know, sure, it feels good to draw, like, four cards. But then sometimes, like, your opponent is just so far ahead of you because you've been just not doing a whole lot on your setup turns. And now you just tapped out for one big thing. If they deal with that one big thing and, like, you know, are attacking you, you you're just not going to have time to deploy the cards you drew in a lot of the games. And that's actually what happened. I played this matchup once from with my Monored deck on uh, Sunday. And in game two... Uh, my opponent had turn two Sylvan Carry added, their best possible play. Turn uh, I had turn one uh, Soulscar Mage. So turn two, I just attacked into the Carry added. They blocked. All I could do in turn two was stomp them with a Bone Crusher. So they're at 18. Their turn three is a tapped land and a second Sylvan Carry added. So they haven't taken any damage. And they have two blockers now. I play a Ra Goblin Rap Master, send my 1-1 one, one, and 1-2 one, into the 2-0-3s. They're still at 18. Their next turn, they play another tap land and tap out for niv -Mizzet. And they drew two I think they only drew two cards off of it. It was Teferi and Thought Erasure. Okay? That, this looks like a great spot for them, right? They have a 6-6 six, six that, that can check the Rabble Master. Uh, you know, 6-6 six, six is going to be hard for me to burn out. If I had to trade Rabble Master and a burn spell for that while dealing them four damage, you know, they're really happy. They, they get to untap at 14 with a grip full of cards and me not have, you know, a huge board. It's just two 1-1s one and a Soulscar. So that, that all looks good for them. You know what I did? I untapped, played land four, cast Bomat Courier, dashed a Goblin Heel Cutter, and attacked them for 12 because they couldn't block with Nivmizit. Goblin Heel Cutter, a yeah. little blast from the yeah. past. I had one in my sideboard specifically to attack through Inverter and uh, Nivmizit. I will tell you this. So I watched a lot of coverage this weekend. When I mean... When you hear me say a lot, you probably think I watched a decent bit of coverage. When I said a lot, I meant all of it. I watched all <laughs> of the coverage this weekend. And watching your match, when they were going over your list, Patrick and uh, Cedric were like, Goblin Heel Cutter? Yeah, directly. Like, There's a lot of cards that are like, I haven't seen this one in a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, that card's legal in this format. And so, yeah, like, just looking at this list, I definitely like the changes. I, I love the Gilded Goose because here's the thing. The hold, other hold real on, big... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm, I wasn't done. Okay. I, I, I apologize, Ross. My I'm opponent sorry. untapped at six life, cast a Supreme Verdict, and thought erasured my Goblin Heel Cutter. Seems like a pretty good turn still. <clears throat> I'm assuming they died. They did not get another turn. 
I drew second lightning strike and just double struck them. So that their draw was on the play, turn two carry added, turn three carry added, turn four niv visit, turn five, thought erasure use supreme verdict, and they did not get another turn and did zero damage to themselves with their lands. Okay, that's actually impressive, but I, I don't know, man. Like, I just don't know if this deck's in the right spot again. Like, you're seeing the red decks get lower to the ground. You're seeing, you know, inverter going in in, in the format, and like, there's no chunky red. If to, they to if on. they had gone gilded, if they had gone gilded goose, silver carry added, niv mizzet on three, thought erasure you into verdict on four, I would have been obliterated. Well, you would have stomped the the goose to be fair, but still, I would have. Okay, that's that's fair. I would have stomped so, the goose. Well, yeah. So just looking at this deck, there's a there's a few other differences, right? Like the actual mana base itself is quite different. He went, uh, him, Paulo Victor Domitoroso, went with a temple package. Like, he's yeah, actually got really all the temples. temples. Yeah, leaning very heavily on temples. I think this was another good move, especially when you have Gilded Goose in your deck. Because and, and when you have a lot of, like, narrowly powerful singletons. Yeah, I, I like this a lot. Because I, I guarantee you, these temples at least won him a game or two over the span of the weekend of just scrying stuff to his deck to, to the bottom to make sure he got to Nibmizit sooner. Or, like you said, finding some of these impactful one-ofs. Another th- a big thing about the Gilded Goose for me is it allows him to get Teferi Time Raveler into play a little bit quicker, which is very po- uh, which is very important in some matchups. Like when you look against like Inverter, they have Sensor, right? So like you're already going kind of like third in some matchups if they're if they're going first because all your lands come into play tapped. But if you can just get this one in under play, you don't have to play around Sensor as bad, you know? Because like you don't even get to play like sometimes you don't even get to play an untapped land to play around Sensor on your turn. You're just having to cast Teferi on, like, turn four with no mana up, you know, and, and stuff like Gilded Goose help, helps out with that. Uh, another big change that we're starting to see in this is they play a, a copy of Slaughter Games I in the main. I literally have my cursor on this card, and I love it. You know, m- most Niv-Mizzet decks have had one uh, on Mordigo for quite a bit. Yep. And they do some pretty similar things, right? But, you know, maybe the, the logic was, like, on Mordigo is cheaper, but against the... Inverter deck, like, they don't kill you before turn five. You're going to get to cast a four-mana card to break up their combo. And when you cast Bring Delight and your Inverter opponent is thinking, like, oh, they're about to Unboard Ego me, and they have a counter spell, they're going to let the Bring Delight resolve. They want to counter the actual Unboard Ego so you can't Bring Delight for it again. Yeah. Right? Then so this was, this was <laughs> Big Brain, for I, I, sure. I want to know how many Inverter opponents had a counter spell for this Bring Delight for Slaughter Games and just didn't counter it. You mean the big slump moment? Like when you slump in your yeah. chair and you're like, son of a bitch, I just got got. <laughs> yes. I just got got real good. I'm, I'm guessing he got some people. Now, you know, that's not something that's going to continue. I think people are going to adapt and be like, okay, you just counter the bring to light. Like they could have slaughter games and you don't want to get got. Um, so, the, you know, I, I agree that this list is very different than the list I've been seeing. There's, there's no Supreme Verdict. I was just about to say that there's no Supreme Verdict, but you're seeing a Solar Blaze, which is like a, a thing that's kind of happening more because it keeps your Gilded Gooses and your Sylvan Caryatids still on the board after you cast it. Which is really important. Yeah, very important. The big one for me, and I love this one, is this deck has an hour of devastation in it. So not only does it clean up a bunch of stuff that's on the board, this kills Jace. You know, this kills the Planeswalkers that are in play that are possibly killing you. Yeah, uh... You know, this list is definitely quite different. Um, I'm I'm kind of into it. I still don't think this deck is that good, and we're not going to see a ton of it. But like th- this, to me, is a significant improvement on previous lists. Yeah, this is my pick for the biggest play change between this weekend and next weekend. I think it's going to have the biggest drop off out of uh, out of all the decks. And uh, yeah, I was going to say if if I had to vote for a deck that like let's say it showed up at 
that would have, you know, I think this shows up at like 3% next week. Unless people were just like, I had this locked in for weeks. <laughs> you know, I don't have access to cards. I highly recommend playing something else. Like, I, I, I cannot get behind this deck. And one of the reasons that uh, we'll get into it that I, I didn't do as well as I expected with my mono red deck is like I expected to play two or three Niv matchups over the weekend from people who were just a little behind, and that just didn't happen. Yep. So uh, just keeping going on Brussels, we're gonna. The reason we're starting with Brussels is that the top eight is actually very diverse compared to <laughs> yeah. the other ones. It's a lot more stuff to talk about. Yeah. So in fourth place, uh, we had what was kind of the talk of the town when this card got previewed. And a deck that a lot of people were worried about. And I think this is this this might be my pick for the, the biggest jump in play between last week and this week, and that's Lotus Breach. And for, for the people that don't know at home, you know, what is Lotus Breach? It's a deck built around Lotus Field and a new card that has gotten a lot of press since it's been printed in Underworld Breach. And this card is bonkers. This card is very, very good. And I think this deck is actually pretty good because here's the thing. The blue black inverter deck, if they don't draw Thoughtseize, like, they don't really interact with you super well in game one. So you almost get to just kind of goldfish them. Yeah, no, you you definitely do. and A big feather in its cap, for sure, yeah, right? It's a big reason to really like and want to play this deck. That kind of speed. Uh, and you know, Underworld Breach, it's such a, a self-contained card. You know, if if you're not getting Leyline or Rest in Peace, like... It doesn't matter what other disruption they've done to you for the rest you know, prior. Underworld Breach just undoes it, as long as you have a bunch of mana. And this deck generates a lot of mana because of Lotus Field and all the various untap effects. Um, so it, it's it's going to be a pretty resilient deck outside of the Graveyard Hate. I, you know, I was surprised to see it do well, because I thought this weekend there would be quite a bit. And there was some. There wasn't quite as much as I thought uh, would show up. But this deck can also just win... A regular game. I, I think that's where, I think that's where this list does goes right. Um, you know, it, it moves away from dig through time. It actually moved. It, there are zero copies of chronic flooding, which is the card people have been playing with breach because there's a deterministic kill. Uh, but those are the cards that lean you into getting hit by graveyard hate. This deck can win outside of the graveyard by just casting Fae of wishes for you know an Ugin the Spirit Dragon, saying, "Can you beat an Ugin? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, who, who can?" Also, it's pretty cool that when you play the Fable Wishes package, you get to leave an Underworld Breach in your sideboard. So if you do get hit by an Unworthy Go or something game one, you know, a Slaughter Games game one, you still have access to a copy of this card. Yeah, and that there's a Jace in the sideboard, so if they try to hit your Thassa's Oracle, thinking that, that like, we're, I'll take your win condition, you know, you can get the Jace and win with that instead. The Jace can also just be this great card advantage engine in disruptive matchups. Is thought distortion against like you know I know this doesn't take the combo pieces out of inverter but taking literally everything else is probably good enough. Yeah, and just speaking of the deterministic thing, there is that one tome scour in the sideboard, and if they're ever wishing for tome scour, they are deterministic at that point. Like they are going to kill you mathematically. It's going to give them enough to get through their entire deck. And like this is how the deck goldfishes. Like when it doesn't have to play a fair game, like you're saying, this is like the pedal to the metal way that it, it combos out on you as quickly as possible. Yeah. So uh, I think what we see here is that, like, you know, they're playing the Lotus Field game, the, the deck that we've seen for the last month or so in Pioneer, maybe even more. Uh, and they've just found a way to incorporate Breach into that shell as opposed to building around Breach, uh, you know, as hard as possible. Because when you do that, you, you run into the Graveyard Hate. This deck still retains, you know, pretty good consistency. 
I think when, once you breach, like, you're probably only casting a couple spells out of your graveyard. I know Seder Wayfinder helps, you know, fuel the graveyard so you have enough to escape multiple things. Uh, pour over the pages is going to give you, you know, an extra card that you discard. Strategic planning as well. And so, you you know, those things are going to generate so much extra mana that your Fae of Wishes is probably going to win anyway. You know, maybe there are games... I, I, I doubt you win even that many games with the fastest Oracle in the main. I mean, I, I know you, you want it because you can be deterministic with Tome Scour. Maybe that's actually what you're digging for. But I, I think a lot of the time, you know, you probably just use Underworld Breach to small ball and generate a bunch of extra mana by casting Hidden Strings, you know, a couple times and Strategic Planning a couple times, and then have enough mana that you can, you know, wish for your Ugin and just end the game that way. Yeah, I mean, like, you even see copies of, like, Supreme Verd. It's like you said, in the matchups where they're not getting erected with your graveyard, I think you can take those value lines a lot more. Like, if you're playing against a red deck and they just go, like, creature, 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 like, burn you, and you're just like, all right, uh, let me get some value out of this stuff. Let me put a bunch of things into my graveyard. I'll underword breach a couple times, and then I'll get the supreme verdict to kind of go off, and then give myself that breathing room for another turn or two, and then set up the kill from there. Yeah, no, that that's another good point. Like that, this this is not a sideboard that is going overboard on wish targets that you, I think you often see in decks with fave wishes or, or similar effects. We've got the one Ugin that when we have a, a bunch of mana, you can just go over the top of you. We have you know a three of in thought distortion that just comes in against like control decks. I'm assuming you bring in like two, right? You leave like the one yeah, for one the wish. Sideboard, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this like, you know, game ender against control decks and heavy disruption decks. You have a sweeper in Supreme verdict against creature decks. You have your alternate, uh, you know, Thassa's Oracle and Jace. You have your one remaining breach, uh, you know, the small sweeper and anger, which is nice also against mono black or one lost legacy for inverter. Uh, a couple different, um, you know, answers to hate in Return to Nature and Natural State, you know, uh, and different mana costs. So that's nice. Uh, and then a couple unravels. So, uh, you know, that's basically a four of, right, of just different disenchants. But when you have a wish package, like you might as well diversify because sometimes you only have the one mana and Natural State and Rest of Peace is good. Sometimes you have two mana, but you need to put it in their library because um, or you want to put it in their library. And sometimes like you know, return to nature can exile a card from the graveyard if that's super relevant. So uh, a really nice split on those. All of these effects are really powerful, uh, but we still have the ability to side in cards against people. You know, we have three sweepers. We can bring in two up to two of them really. It's still have a sweeper in our sideboard, bring in multiple thought distortions, a couple different disenchants. Um, so I'm, again, I'm just, I'm impressed by the list. And so, you know, not super surprised to be impressed by a deck that went 901 and made the semifinals of the tournament. Um, but I, I like the way that they've built it, built their list to not be hampered by graveyard hate. So just, just don't bother with the chronic flooding nonsense. Don't go overboard on dig through times. You know, that Lotus field shell that people were working on was already pretty good. Now we have underworld breach, which is this great way to, uh, make you resilient to traditional disruption to, you know, to thought seizes and counter spells. Um, and, uh, you know, you're using it to bolster that shell as opposed to building around it and being murked by all this graveyard hate. Yep, and if we look at the next deck on the list, this is actually our fifth and eighth place finisher. Another deck that I think you might see the numbers kind of crawl up on. Another big surprise from this weekend as well, right? And we're looking at Bant Spirits, not, not blue-white, Ross. We've been seeing blue-white do really well lately in the hands of, like, it, it's, in particular, Max McVetti has been crushing online with that deck. But now you're seeing his deck, and they're just adding in the third color, for one card. You're just seeing Collected Company as a four of them. And hey, we're finally right for the first episode of the show ever. We were talking about the pillars of the format. We thought Collected Company would be one of the cards that decks got built around in. It took a while. <laughs> it took a little while, Ross, but we got here. There's obviously some green cards in the sideboard or two, but 
you're looking at just a, a traditional spirits deck. You know, you've got your your brazen borrowers, which they got cut down a little bit on, um, and you're just looking at you know rattle chains, mausoleum wanderers, spectral sailors, etc., etc., etc. Collect the company and lands. So um, I think this is a deck that you will see an uptick in because I think people just owned this deck as well. Like you know, it was a very popular deck in modern for a while, and if people are like me and they hoard their stuff, they've just got this deck sitting on the side. Your mana base is good enough. You know, you have you have enough dual lands. You have Botanical Sanctum, Temple Garden, Breeding Pool as just like tech, quote unquote, free uh, sources of green along with it. So you're looking at, you know, about 12 sources of green in the main deck to uh, be able to cast four cards. And you don't necessarily have to have it on turn four. I mean, the card is powerful at any point in time, and this deck plays a good game otherwise. So this is a deck that I think is pretty decent against Breach and pretty decent against Inverter because you have answers to their stuff, main deck and a more sideboard. But you also have like a clock, like you have a plan of getting to be down, and you get to play on their turn. Yeah, deck is so hard to play against uh, because it just has so many different effects on all of its creatures. You could get spell quelled if you like, you know, especially if they have rattle chains out and you don't do anything because you don't want to get quelled. They could just eagle you and start pressuring you. They could have Nebel Guest Herald to swing the race around. So it's all it's really hard to race them because they just spirits gets to control combat. All their creatures fly, and probably yours probably mostly don't. So they get to decide how many of their creatures attack and how many are blocking. You don't ever get to block. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, and you know, their creatures tend to be big because they have all these anthems. And then uh, they break up your removal with Mausoleum Wanderer and Spell Queller and Selfless Spirit and Rattle Chains. And then, you know, and then they, now they have Nebel Guest Herald to just tap down your creatures while they play their lords so that they can win the race. So uh, I think if you are good in combat situations and heavy combat games, this is the deck for you, uh, which is why it's something I'm looking at heavily for this weekend in Philadelphia. I wish I had played a Spirits deck, even if it was Azorius last week. I wrote about Azorius Spirits last week and then just got kind of cold feet. I thought I was going too far, and instead like I, I would have been right on where Spirits yeah. was good, maybe um, even if Azorius was a worse list. Uh, collecting company, I think just it just works really well in this deck and it's easy enough to splash. Um, this deck does not play that well from behind, and collecting company is the you know basically the best catch up card along with Nebel Guest Herald. So uh, re- really impressed with this deck. The one thing I'm a little worried about is Mystical Dispute is just super popular and it's really good against this deck. It seems like to me to me that Mystical Dispute might be the best sideboard card. Oh, it is right now. by a country mile. It's not even close. Uh, you know, the Band Spirits notably also won Players Turn to Goya in the hands of Kenta Harane. Uh, very similar lists. Um, so, though the, Harane had two permeating mass in their sideboard, and I don't really get those. Um, I've been try, f- trying to figure the, that out the entire time, but, um, you know, I don't know. Th- this Maybe is, this is a, a miss. Uh, like, this, this wasn't actually the card in their sideboard. Oh, no, I think it was. It's a spirit. I think it's just like a cheap card against aggressive decks. Is my guess, um, but it's also quite. I somebody in chat in versus live uh, mentioned that it's quite good against Insult when they just go like one drop oh. Insult it. You know that that's a nice answer to it in, in a deck that doesn't have a ton of them, and it's just, it's just so cheap to do so. Interesting. Okay. But, you know, but to me, uh, I you know, it's it might be surprising at first glance that Bant Spirits is emerging now when this deck has essentially existed in Pioneer since the beginning. And I think people tried it out in the beginning. It wasn't that good. Uh, but this is a great metagame for it. You know, I think it's good against Inverter. It's probably reasonable against Delirium. Maybe not great. Um, it's good against things like Lotus Breach. And it's pretty, it's better than you would think against the small aggro decks. Because that I actually struggled against Spirits. I lost to it three times with Mono Red, which I did not expect. 
they just like curved Wanderer into Lords, and I just fell too far behind because of Wanderer. They would get multiple Lords down, and it was just too hard to break up. And then all their creatures were big, and they all flew, and it just <laughs> it, it was it was bad. I, I basically got murked by every single Spirits pilot. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and round out the rest of the uh, thing. We haven't talked about the 6th or 7th place finish decks, and with good reasons. It's decks we've seen a bunch before with Juan Jose Rodriguez Lopez coming in 6th of Mono Red Aggro. We will talk a little bit about this because this isn't Chunky Red. You know, the deck that was the best deck in the format for a couple weeks there. You're looking at a deck now that, you know, we're looking at Monastery Swiss Beer with Abt of Carol Keep, Soulscar Mage, Kari Zev. You know, like, you're, you're trying to get your opponent dead. Yeah. Um, no, I'm... You know, there's a, a few different ways people are building mono red aggro. My list is quite different than this one. I think this one is better for what ended up, you know, showing up. Um, though I still really like Mita Vault, but, uh, you know, Chain Roller is good. The big thing I think is Kari's Ev is very good. Uh, it survives Cry of the Carnarium, which is the common cyber card out of Inverter. Right. Uh, you know, attacks easily into Thassa's Oracle without killing it. Because <laughs> you actually don't really want to kill the Oracle when they play it early. The, the, uh, and the Oracle is going to always block the, the Ragavan, but you'll still get one in every turn at least, which is more than you can say for some of the other ones. I'm not a big fan of Abbot of Carol Keep. I've never been a huge fan of this card, but yeah. all it does is win. <laughs> like, yeah. this thing's got multiple Pro Tour wins under its belt and stuff, so. I think it's a good card. I just think it works better in a deck with a really, really low curve. Um, and then Torbrin is just re- just really good. It's good with Kari Zev, it's good with Cham Whirler. Um, you know, the it's just a really powerful magic card so I, I i like a lot of what this deck is doing um i still don't like the sideboard i hate all these torment scripts i think they do nothing um, you know how i feel about that i've been saying that for a long time yeah i i, I actually liked my sideboard quite a bit i, I think dire fleet daredevil is awesome in the aggressive matchups and good against inverter i think uh you know uh, lava coil is quite good I think um, if you saw my sideboard guide uh, last weekend, I was not bringing in Lava Coil against Inverter. In hindsight, I think I should have been because I think Lava Coiling their... Um, they, they all bring in Kalidus, so it's good against that. And Lava Coiling their Oracle, I think, is quite good and just exiling it. So I would I would make some space and bring in some Lava Coils against them. I'm not okay. sure what these Fries are supposed to be doing. I guess they're good, against, they're good against Spirits. So maybe our red decks need more Fries for the Spirits matchup. Maybe that's what I was missing and why I was losing the Spirits. Fry, fries are really yeah. good there. So, interacting at, at that kind of at that kind of pace is probably pretty good yeah, yeah they, they they just have queller and uh and um selfless spirit and like selfless spirit's going to trade for a bird spell anyway no matter what it is so um although it doesn't if you have uh if you have what's it what's we call uh soul scar then self spirit doesn't do anything right right and then uh if we look at the seventh place list just mono black aggro the kind of deck we've seen this is stock mono black i'm, I'm sorry it's a stock mono black. Yeah, stock mono black. One of the cool things I've seen is people are starting to play Agonizing Remorse yeah. in the sideboard. And this is like the exile clause on the discard can come into play. You know, you get to not leave a combo piece in their graveyard for when they might be inverting it back into their deck. Yeah, and other that, that's little like the things. One, yeah, the one new thing. But this deck, it did okay. It won like 50% of his matches. It was pretty widely played. Uh, you know, put one person in the top eight. There were several people that A2'd or better Brussels with this, like Andrea Gucci. Um was who were there's there's a couple of name players who right yeah uh Andre Maguchi and Tiago Saparito that's uh, it yeah, yeah yeah both with eight eight wins uh with the deck so a couple of good players putting up good results with it I think Mono Black Aggro is kind of like it's a baseline average deck for the format you know if your deck is worse than Mono Black you probably shouldn't ever be playing it um and Mono Black will never be like that bad but it probably won't ever be that good like everybody knows what it's doing it, it is the it is what it is. It's also one of the cheaper decks to own. Like Mono Red and Lotus Breach are the two cheaper decks money wise. 
but mono black's like next one on the, li- on the list. Yeah. But if you start looking at the the decks that if you look at like Demir, pretty expensive. Mutavolt's pretty expensive. Mono black is more more expensive than Demir Inverter. Well, it it, it no actually it's not not it's with the cards. More, it's spiking. more expensive online. Yeah, yeah, not with yeah. the cards spiking. But if you look at like Soulty Delirium or Nivellite, those decks are like two to three times as expensive. Oh yeah, Monster those are, those are the really expensive decks. So it's all right. rares and mythics and. Yeah, so if, if we take a look at the overall top eight of Proter and Agoya, uh, like you said, there's five Demir Inverter decks, one of which was like the mono blue version, but there was two decks in this top eight that didn't show up in the other two. And I want to slow roll the the really crazy one. Uh, so in sixth place, you had uh, Dmitry Budakov, very, you know, very good player in his own right, with mono black vampires. It, like, what what makes you want to play mono black vampires over mono black aggro in this format? I th- This deck's a little bit bigger and a little more robust than the other aggressive decks, which gives it an edge in those matchups. Uh, you know, Give to Day of the Born and Kalidus, both really good against Mono Red. Soren, Imperious Bloodlord, great in those matchups. Champion of Dust gives you this great piece of card advantage in mid-range and control matchups. Also helps you dig towards your disruption against them. So I, I think it it's just a little bit less vulnerable to the uh, anti-aggro cards that people have and good against other aggressive decks. So I think this was a good choice for last weekend. Not sure how good it's going to be moving forward. You know, you also see he came pretty well prepared for Inverter with all these Lost Legacies. You know, Vampire is, historically is known as an aggro deck that's great at grinding out other mid-range or mid-range of control decks. Uh, and so, you know, three Lost Legacy tells you that like, he's pretty much just concerned about them comboing. And if he can deal with that, he can just, you know, beat their fair game. You know, also has Liliana Last Hope to, to help grind against them and like Rankles and stuff. So uh, I think that's where the thought process behind this deck is. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I got, I got to say this. If you have any kind of proactive plan and you take the the Inverter of Truth out of their deck, like if you're able to like Lost Legacy name Inverter Truth, I think you're a big favorite in that matchup. Like you're going to probably be able to beat them just on deck alone at that point. So I definitely like that. And let's talk about this second place list, the list that almost beat Banned Spirits in the finals from Ken Yukohara. Uh, Saram Auras? Question mark? You know, Ken always comes in with some wacky decks, right? Just always here with cool decks. Did not disappoint in this Pro Tour. Uh, this deck is sweet. Yeah, so right. it's not mono-white. It's got a little bit of a black splash in it, but... It's got a lot of Theros Beyond Death cards. Yeah, there's a ton. And there's there's a lot of cards in here that... If you haven't played Limited in Theros Beyond Death, you're going to need to learn what some of these cards do. So um, I'll see Life's Bounty uh, is, is a four of this deck. You've got Favorite Hoplite... Uh, Hold on. Stop at all seed of lifespan. Okay, sure. Because I think this card is going to start showing up more and more as people play with it. I, I think it should be a one of in these collected company decks in modern that are playing Heliod combo. I think it might okay. be better than Giver of Runes against them. Because it comes on, online immediately and it's a lifelink creature, so it works a little bit better with Heliod. Um, I, I think this card, this is just a good magic card. Yeah, so. Uh, that's a four of in this deck. Pretty cool. Just for people at home who don't know what it is, I want to look it up. It is a one white mana, one one with lifelink. But here's where it comes in to be really good. It's also an enchantment creature if that matters. But you can pay a mana and sacrifice it. It matters. And you get, and you, yeah, and you, you can pay a mana and sacrifice it to use the mom ability. You can target a creature or enchantment uh, that you control gets protection of the color of your choice until in turn. So this kind of helps like protect you from removal, you know, get your last piece of damage through it in an aggro deck. Like, hey, this has pro black, attack through this inverter, you know. The fact that it can, like, protect your ethereal armors and all that glitters from, like, abrupt decays, that, that is relevant. Like, people do that to, you know, keep this deck in check. And those cards are so good in this deck because you have you have 11 creatures that are also enchantments. So, you know, 
normally in the the Aura's decks, you're you're playing like 20, 25. This deck plays 31 enchantments in it. So you're regularly pumping for four, five, six very early in the game. Yeah, I'm going to start reading off some more of these cards. You get four Hateful Eidolon. So this is one that you haven't heard of. It's a a one black mana, one two, uh, enchantment creature spirit. So it is a spirit if that randomly comes up, but it's got lifelink. And it says whenever an enchanted creature dies, not just yours, it could be somebody else's, uh, you draw a card for each aura you controlled that was attached to it. So pretty cool little thing there. Some kind of, uh, it's just another one drop to put pants on, you know, as they would say in the the modern thing. But it's got lifelink and it's got an ability that could be relevant in the game. It gives you back some of the cards you lose from putting a bunch of enchantments on a creature if you get your creature killed. Um, how do you pronounce the first part of this? How do you pronounce this creature? Do you know? Ephemia. Ephemia? Okay, it's got it's got Ephemia. This is a 2-1 flyer for one of the black. Uh, at the beginning of your instep, you can exile an enchantment card from your graveyard. If you do, you create a 2-2 black zombie creature. Very good creature to play after they've used removal against you. You kind of recoup some of that. You go wide on your opponent. Also, even if you've sacrificed Alcyon, that's an enchantment you can exile to it. If they fatal push your turn one hateful Eidolon, you know, you play it, follow it up with an Ephemia and exile it on the end step because they're probably going to tap out for their removal spell. You know, they don't want you to untap and have Karametra's Blessing. And you now you've made two creatures. Suddenly, like, their one removal spell doesn't kill both. They have to let you untap. You know, you play an enchantment on something, like, and it just spirals out of control. This is a this is the card that, that really helps the stack grind through interaction. Yeah, and then four of the namesake, well, you've got well, Saram along, Senior. Along with Saram. <laughs> yeah, you've got Swarm uh, Senior Edificer. So this creature, it's a it's a two two for one in a white. Whenever you cast whenever you cast an aura, equipment, or vehicle spell, draw a card. It's a dwarf which is like, advisor. Don't leave yes. that out, Tannen. Yeah, he's a dwarf advisor. Sorry, I, I sorry all the dwarves out there. That's my bad. But I will say this: when you have a card that says when you cast half your deck, draw a card. I'm in. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm in. It doesn't take much to sell me on this. You mean like glimpse of nature in in Legacy Elves with your Shut thirty elves? Yeah, there's a reason why I counterspelled that card every time it got cast. But, <laughs> um. You're looking at four uh, Kyometra's Blessing. Again, if you haven't played Limited, you don't know what this card is. It's one white. It's an instant. Uh, target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. That's whatever. If it's an enchanted creature or an enchantment creature, it also gains hexproof and indestructible. That is huge. You cannot get Raft. You cannot get Abrupt Decade. Like, this card is absurd. You can't get, you know, Vraska's Contempted or Exile Effects. It stops abilities. Can't get Deputy of Detention. It really, it literally it is the card that protects your creatures from everything. You know, all your 11 enchantment creatures, it protects them all the time. Your SRAMs and favorite hoplites, just put one enchantment on them. Like, it's pretty easy to put your, you know, Cartusha Solidarity on your SRAM so that it stays protected and then put all your other enchantments on the creatures you want to attack. What? I'm blanking on it. What is the green card? It's like one green mana plus two plus. It does like half of this card. You know, Infect plays it. Um, uh, blossoming uh, Defense? Yeah. If you could play Blossoming Defense in the stack, like if it was just like white you would still play this card over it it's actually just better yeah it's, it's everything better. that card wants to be and more yeah and blossoming defense you know card that sees play modern in you know these style of decks i want to go all in on one creature and protect it so that's really nice um and then new cards for in the spell slot is just sentinel's eyes after that uh yeah you know, this, i mean you can kind of count uh all that glitters it's relatively new but yeah yeah no all the glitters in ethereal armor are your like we need to beat down cards Cartouche Solidarity is your protection from Edict Effect, you know, card that's also just solid. First Strike really helps you in combat. Vigilance helps your, you know, creature play both offense and defense. Grifspoon gives you some evasion. Both Sentinel's Eyes and Grifspoon come back from the graveyard. So, like, the only ones you have to really worry about protecting are the armor and all that glitters. Um, 
you know, and you might see like none of these enchantments are grant lifelink, which is a big part of the or, the hexproof deck in modern. Like you, you want to be lifelink so you can race, but hateful Eidolon and Elsie Edelweiss bounty is come with lifelink attached. They just stapled right on there. You got it anyway. So what I want to say about this deck overall is not only is it cool, I do think this deck is good because it's attacking from angles people aren't ready for yet. And I think that if you want to get into Pioneer and you haven't found your niche yet, or you haven't found your deck yet, or you want to get in at a low uh, price point, this is your deck. Like this deck is under $200 right now. I do think these cards might go up in price relatively soon, especially if like somebody else plays it this weekend and does well with it. And they're like, oh, sh oh shit, this deck's real. You know, kind of thing. Also note uh, that a third of the price of it on Goldfish comes from the two Thoughtseizes in the sideboard. Yeah, like <laughs> the, the Thoughtseizes are more than almost the entire deck. So if you take out the lands, it's more than the entire deck. Because yeah. you have like Godless Shrine, you know. And there was a Mana Confluence in the deck, which is like a $25 card or whatever. But uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, one of my uh, longtime listeners and followers, Goober. I know you love, love, love decks that you know put pants on creatures he's, he's a big big fan of these decks in modern stuff hey you've been asking for it to be good in pioneer here it is this is your time to shine play this deck i think it's actually pretty good yeah i'm i kind of like this deck the, the brain maggots and the sideboard are sweet you know you get to protect them easily apostle uh, get, purifying light yeah that, that to me says that he didn't like his matchup against mono black which makes sense like mono black is good efficient removal and pressures you and your mana base is a little painful like if they just deal with your lifelinkers early uh, it's going to be hard to beat them. So now you have a Apostle, so that they like use their removal on your lifelinker, you put something on this, and like that, you know, just make it big. <laughs> Even got Gideon of the Trials in here, too. Yeah, and definitely came prepared for uh, Inverter, and beat it twice in the top eight of this tournament, beat it in the quarters and in the semis. So uh, really impressive performance from this deck. I think people look at this deck, I don't think most people looking at this deck understand how fast it's going to kill you. Like it, because of all of these enchantment creatures, all the glitters and ethereal armor are huge boosts for starting from turn three, right? So you go turn one creature, turn two SRAM, like they're probably dead on turn four. I think that this deck is might be the fastest aggro deck in the format. And that and has a bunch of ways to play through disruption. Hateful Eidolon provides card advantage or recoups the card advantage that you lose when they kill an, a protected creature. Ephemia generates card advantage. SRAM generates card advantage. Griffspoon comes back from the graveyard. Sentinel's Eyes comes back from the graveyard. And it, you know, all of your protection cards generate incredible amounts of tempo. So I'm I I like this deck. Um I am not ready to like, you know, stake myself on it because I would have to oh. play a bit with it. Oh yeah, this is the deck that I file away as I think this deck's good. I think it's very playable and probably good enough to play in a tournament. I'm I'm too scared to ever register this deck. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. I I'm I would love to register this deck. I would be so excited. So excited. I'd uh, be so worried. <laughs> and, and this is another one of those decks like people are going to play against it a bit this week, you know, they're going to figure some things out about it. Yeah. So, you know, all, all of those things that we talked about with Sultan Delirium are true here. It's going to get a little bit worse. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was kind of a flash in the pan, but I I the deck makes a lot of sense to me on paper. It looks it looks really powerful, and it's really about how much better Ethereal Armor and all the glitters get when you get to artificially increase the enchantment density of your deck. Um, and the power of Ephemia, which is a card I like quite a bit. I know Ari Lax wrote about it during preview season on Star City Games. So uh, I'm, I I if I had more time, I would work a lot in this deck. I think I'm focusing more on Bant Spirits this week uh, because I, I just have a little bit more confidence that it's going to be good. It's less of a risk. 
You've also played stuff like that a lot before in your career, so... Yeah, you never want to be the person that takes a big risk on a deck and, like, have it fall flat in a team event, and you're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Bring it to Candio. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I, I did it, too, for us last year, playing that uh, that Emery Ascendancy deck. I've washed that from my memory completely, because yeah. every time I looked over, you did 17 things on turn one and then died on turn three. Yeah. Or turn four, so... I'm I'm just gonna chalk it up that I was injured that weekend. I wasn't in the right headspace. Yeah, <laughs> man, my deck was so good too. I got it right that weekend. I was so mad. Anyway, y'all played some piss poor decks in that tournament. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so when we look at all this, oh yeah, Brian's deck like, was bad in that event too. Oh, it was really bad. So when we look at all of this kind of information that we're getting just from the players tour, and even at the open this weekend, we look at that. The uh, so it went to they've gone to the the format where they do a top four now, so a top eight of the team events. All four of the Pioneer decks were Demir Inverter. And then if you look at the overall results from this, we don't have the overall records from um, both of the player stores, but the one at Brussels, we do have the only 10-0, because they played 10 rounds of Pioneer, was Demir Inverter. So do with what you will. It's the best deck. It's the most played deck. It's the best deck. It's very good for a reason. If you are not playing it, you better be ready to play against it, because you are going to do it probably more than any other deck in the format. Yeah, I think your your top five decks in, well, Demir Reverter is a clear number one. I actually kind of think Bant Spirits is number two, maybe Solta Delirium three, Mono Black Aggro four, Mono Red Aggro five. And those are the five decks I would be uh, really looking at and trying to beat this weekend. I think like Vampires is also reasonable. Lotus Breach is something you have to have in mind. Is it in Soul is something you have to have in mind. Uh, these Heli- Heliod decks, whether they're mono-white or splashing for company, those are something you have to have in mind. Uh, but those are secondary priorities. Azorius Control maybe a little too, even though it didn't do very well. I think people just like that deck and play it. Um, but really your top five is Inverter and then, you know, four others. <laughs> the, whatever I said, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I, I think that Breach is going to be the big surprise this weekend. I think I think someone's going to get it right and just do super, super well. I do kind of want to talk a little bit about the open and just in, and take a, a snapshot of what I'm looking at here. I just want to check something real quick. Okay, so in the top eight, only two decks were not Demir Inverter. Do you? One of them was you with Mono Red, and you said you went six, eight? Six and eight, yes, was my Sorry. individual and record. And the other top eight was Bob Huang, as, is it in Seoul? Ooh, I lost two in round two. Yeah, I think we got to see that one, right? That was on no, camera? That, was, that no. was not on camera. I was going to say, I remember seeing him and you both on camera a lot. Yeah, so He, uh, he four-outed me with a Shrapnel Blast in game one. I had one game two. And game three, he had uh, turn one, land Shadow Spear. Turn two, uh, Dark Steel Citadel, and soul my Citadel. Turn three, third land, equip my and soul the Citadel with Shadow Spear. Attack you with a 6-6 Trampling Lifelinker. I didn't beat that with my Mono Red deck. <laughs> no, you're not. And <laughs> I got to say this. Is it in Soul is like my sneaky pick. Like I think it's my pick for deck that's getting the least amount of uh, respect. Yeah, and it's like most likely to creep up and punch you in the mouth. You know, like I'm 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 with you there. I think that deck is good. I think the breach deck isn't getting as much respect as well. So those are both both those calls. I think are good. Like if you have a really good list and you know your deck really well, because they're a little they're a little bit less powerful than the rest of the field. So you need to have those other edges locked up. But I, I'm. I'm definitely a lot higher on the Izzet and Soul deck than uh, the rest of Team BCLD, I'll tell you that. Gotcha. Was there anything else about Richmond you wanted to say before we move on? Yeah, um, you know, 
Uh, I wrote a lot all about it this week on SCG that just reflecting on all three formats uh, and the lists that we all played, but especially with mine. And, you know, I, I know I wrote about spirits last week and I was waffling between red and spirits for the tournament. And I ended up going the red thinking that I, I might be leveling myself playing spirits and that I, like, I probably would have played spirits if I was playing one of the, the pro tours. Um, and I, I started off pretty well. Like I was five and two through the first seven rounds, having gotten like lost that match to Bob where I felt like, you know, you know, he had a really good draw game three and got a, a lucky in game one uh, because I, I think that deck matchup is pretty good for Mono Red because you just have so many cheap removal spells. And then it was just the wheels came off. I went one and six over the last seven rounds. My teammates are great, just carried me throughout the entire tournament. Jake Mandel and Chris Marshall, uh, their decks were both really good, Mono Red and Standard and the Heliod Company deck in Modern. I think the Heliod Company deck in Modern is great. And ever, yeah, it's, very good. it's a good against Amulet. I watched Marshall just murk Amulet opponents all day. Up until the last round against Dom Harvey, when he ca- he had like twelve draws to one of like ten cards and couldn't find it in one mat game, and Gross. was probably losing game three, um, when we had both just gotten crushed. Um, so I think he was a little uh, you know even unlucky to lose that match, but like you know that's going to happen. He's probably three one four one on the weekend in the matchup and just you know winning pretty easily in a lot of his games. Um, but the I ended up going with the mono red deck and really regretting it. We had some unique circumstances in Richmond because. Everybody got to see the lists from all the players tours uh, come out, and then they got to see a day of action with them, you know, on that Friday, and then you know figure them out. So the metagame was more advanced than I think it normally would have been. And I've been a victim of like leveling myself a little bit in the past, and now I finally didn't do it. And this was the weekend that to like respect everything and go a little bit further. Uh, and, I, and so instead, I ended up with a deck that was a little bit behind the metagame, uh, and, and so that was my big problem. Um, uh, though, like you know. The changes I made, I thought were good from like Keeney's list that he really liked and tweeted about. The Rabble Masters were solid and good with, with um, good with uh, Stoke the Flames. It's just not that good against what the Inverter deck is doing. Like an Inverter with Cry the Canarium and Thassa's Oracle contains Rabble Master pretty well. Um, so it, it just didn't really work out. And uh, I don't know. You know, Richmond is. I think Richmond is the one where that like I'm taking the results more with a grain of salt because they got so heavily influenced by the players tour. Uh, you know, all the like what the best players play is gonna win, even if they don't necessarily have a great record. Like, you know, Pete Ingram and in the, the winning team, he went four and five on day one. <laughs> it with Demir Inverter. He went yeah, six. I heard he was not doing yeah. as hot as he would like. Yeah. He went six one on day two, if you include the, the last year rounds in the top four and the in the finals. So it balanced out but he, so he went ten and six. Over the course of the weekend, he played a million mirrors, you know, and, and he had pack right in a sideboard, which he said was good in the mirrors. So, like, still just not a great record. You know, 10 and 6 is like, you know, that's a mediocre record. Um, uh, so, uh, I, I'm, you know, we already know that Inverter is the breakout deck of the weekend and public enemy number one now. You know, if you look at Richmond 2, you might think, like, this deck is just completely broken. We need a ban. I wouldn't go that far. So, I would caution against th- that kind of stuff. And, uh, it, you know, the the team events are really like they they show you what the best players are going to be playing. So if you want to be re- winning, you know, round 13, 14, 15 in these tournaments, these are this is the kind of metagame you're you're going to come up against especially in a team event, but it, it doesn't tell you much more than that. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, we had quite a bit of mailbag submissions uh this week. Yeah, the most I think we've ever had. Yeah, so I'm excited to get into this. So, um the first one comes from Carp Master Mike. And the question is, why is no one running the new Shadow Spear over Ghostfire Blade? Is it insult, which we're seeing happen now? Well, the, Bob had one Shadow Spear on a sideboard. It wasn't over, you know. 
Right. I'm, I'm just saying, like, um, we're starting to see it kind of creep in. So very good question. Um, I got to say, I, I don't know why people aren't running it, because it seems not like a free roll, but just another thing that this deck wants. I mean, it, it, it just sort of depends on how many cheap equipment you want, because I'm not playing this over Ghost Fireblade. The one mana difference is, is really important. Like, this deck is all about mana efficiency, um, you know, against matchups like Delirium and Inver Inverter. The lifelink is not great. So, like, you know, what you're, you're, what you're paying isn't for a great um, payoff, what you're paying for. Uh, so the, it really is mana efficiency, at least in the main deck. I do think Shadow Spear is a very good cyborg card in this deck for aggressive matchups, matchups where you're racing. You know, that's where it's going to shine. But it really just plays that role in specific matchups and isn't anything more than that. Yeah. All right. Second question comes from Cody Absen Battle Priest. Is there a Death Raptor, Din Protector decked in Pioneer somewhere, or is the interaction too slow? If we're talking about competitive, no, there's no room for this. I think it's too slow. Um, also, a lot of people are just you know, packing graveyard hate right now too, which kind of it's good against other decks, and you kind of just hit the you get hit by that hate as well. Yeah, that kind of marginal value is just not going to cut it at, at. It's not enough. The yeah. next level up, but like. You're, you're playing train armadons and morphs in your deck. You're just going to get run over with them against like good removal. And the, you know, people have ways to stop that engine. Like you said, with good graveyard hates, things like scavenging ooze exist in pioneer that didn't exist in this standard for environment where those two cards existed. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not ever considering those cards unless something, you know, you know, maybe there's a hypothetical metagame that could develop where that kind of thing is good, but it's not this one. <laughs> Our next question is from our editor, Brent. Hey, Brent. Uh, question for Ross, since Tana doesn't believe in math, how often do you use hypergeometric calculators when making decisions in games when playtesting? Not very often. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of math, uh, you know, th those kind of calculations can help you a little bit when you're trying to make really marginal decisions, especially with your mana base. Um, but the key is you have to make informed decisions, right? Like, uh, you know, it doesn't really tell you anything to know outside of any context that playing, you know, 14 sources of for turn one of a color lets you draw that source in your opening hand like 90% of the time or 80, whatever it is. And playing the 15th lets you, you know, do, you know, let's say 85%. I think it's something around there. And that the 15th gives you 88%. Like, there's no way for you to know what those three percentage points mean, especially in terms of how they impact your win rate. But what you should do is test, you know, your deck. And the testing gives you a lot of the broad strokes. It tells you, like, I think this card is really underperforming. I don't want it. I want more cards like this effect. And you figure out what cards those are, you know, and then you get uh, you get really close. I think the math really helps make those decisions for the last, like, card or two, where you're like, well, you know, I would really ideally want something closer to, you know, two and a half or two, you know, two and a third and, and one and two thirds. And you can make that judgment based on the intuition you've gained from testing the deck. And then the math will show you exactly where to round off to get as close to that ideal as possible. Um, so I use it, you know, almost exclusively, not in game because that, that I never do. Sometimes I do it on versus live just to show off my mental math, but it doesn't really affect my decision at all. I'll just say like, oh, there I've got 24 outs. So we're about now 37% and I'll, I'll get with pretty close. Um, but, uh, you know, when I'm like, when I'm at the end of testing, there's no way you're going to test a thousand games with each configuration and figure out that this one of is the right one or three, two split one way is right versus the other way. So I like, you know, coming up with a theoretical framework 
saying like, these are the variables that I'm going to say are most important to me in making this decision. And then using the math with those variables, with those parameters to figure out exactly what, what it means. Obviously, like you're going to miss something because there's thousands of variables to consider when making these decisions. But the better you get and the more testing you have, uh, you know, the better you are at being able to pick out the most important variables. And you're going to get, you know, I think closer to a better deck list with going with that route than you will by just saying, okay, the last 10 games I played, this one was better. So I'll go three to the split towards, you know, this removal spell instead of the other one. Gotcha. All right. The next question is going to be a little bit for you as well. A box <laughs> it's going to contains... be a lot of it for me. <laughs> yeah. Obviously you're answering this question from Quinn O'Grady. A box contains three cards. One card is red on both sides. One card is green on both sides. And one card is red on one side and green on the other. One card is selected from the box at random and the color on one side is, is observed. If if this side is green, what is the probability that the other side of the card is also green? Okay. What do you think it is, Tannen? I'm I, I'm not even dude, come on. You don't you don't <laughs> want to embarrass yourself? No. I mean I'm sure if I sat down with like a pen and paper and thought about it logically for like a minute or two, I could probably come close to the answer. So the, I just don't want to think about it. So so this is like the uh, this is like the Monty Hall problem. Uh, and the, the, the trick to it is they're trying to get you to say it's one half because you think like, oh, the, the side is green and there's one card that's going to be green on the other side and one card that's going to be red on the other side. So it's 50-50. But that's not actually true. The answer is two thirds. And here's why. What's actually happening is you're seeing one of these six sides of these three cards. So there's six sides and they're showing you one of them. Okay. So think about the three green sides. Two of them have green on the other side. It's the, each side of the double green card. One of them, oh, yeah, yeah, one sure, of the sure. green sides has red on the other side, and it's the split card. So the the answer ends up being two thirds. Okay, nice. That was a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be. Uh, next question, question again from Cody Abzan Battle Priest. How different would the landscape of Pioneer look if Mutavault wasn't printed in M14? I think it would look quite different, actually, because and worse and worse. Um, I think that a lot of the best decks over the history of this format wouldn't be there because you wouldn't see the mono color decks doing as well. That is one of the pulls to be playing mono red, uh, mono red aggro or mono black is the fact that you get to play Mutavault along with your lands. Yeah. So I, I like, it's hard to say like, exactly what would have happened. Would we have had to build like more all in linear aggressive decks and then sort of anti hard anti aggro decks get better as a result. Maybe that's one way it could go. Maybe, you know, the, the multicolor mid-range decks get to be more of part of the format because the aggro decks aren't as powerful. But, like, you know, right now, and we're only still only, you know, under six months into the format, you know, the aggro decks aren't super dominant. There was the one, like, brief period where mono black aggro was really good, and, you know, Smuggler's Copter is a big part of it. Guard got manned. Now, like, the aggro decks are around, and they're competing, but they're certainly not overpowered, and Mutavault is a big part of them, and I love Mutavault. So... I don't know if, if Cody is coming after me to all. Maybe he's just curious, but I feel threatened anytime somebody brings a question like this up, like they want to get the card banned and uh, because I'm paranoid and I just, I, I never want to ever get rid of me to all. I love that card. Mm -hmm. uh, next question is from our resident food expert, Yeoman5. Uh, we have a food section in our Discord and Yeoman5 is probably the most... Um, crushing it. He is prolific. I think crushing it. Yeah, he's been crushing it. Uh, what is it? Yeoman breakfast or yeoman eats, yeoman breakfast, yeoman lunch, yeoman I dinner. Care, I don't care what it is. Yeah, it's, it's just great. Yeoman um, 11Zs, I'm in. Yeah. yeah. Um, great question from Yeoman with a simple answer. Uh, what's the sweetest list to come out of the Nagoya uh, RPT? Uh, that would be the Saram deck from Ken Yukaharo. Yeah, it's not Correct close. answer. That is the dopest shit I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, just super great, super great deck. I am super excited about it. I own like not a lot of this deck, and I'm thinking about just dropping the like 50 bucks to go get the rest of it because I have the expensive cards. So, uh, all right, next one is from the Great Boomer. Love this name, by the way. I think we say it every time it comes up. Okay. Magic boomer. growth question. For about the last year, I keep going undefeated at my local FNM. Sick brag. And consistently ranked in mythic numbers every season. I find my locals to not really be much of a challenge, but I want to get better at magic. Any tips or ideas how to get better? Um, for me, I would say get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I know it's hard to, hard to do, but playing with people that are better than you is the easiest and most efficient way to get better at magic. Um, you're not going to learn as much if you're constantly playing um, competition that isn't up to par with you because you're not going to ever have to be better. Like You're never going to be challenged in any way, shape, or form. Uh, when I was in my formative years for Magic, I played in a tight-knit group of guys. It was about six to eight people. And whenever we would do an eight-man, I was probably like the seventh best player in that eight-man or the eighth best player every time. And this is after winning like multiple limited PTQs and top eighting a limited Grand Prix. And I was still considered one of the worst in my little eight-man. Yeah. Uh, no, I have the exact same answer as Tannen here. I think, you know, if you find yourself doing really well at this level, like you just got to raise the difficulty level, you know, you're, pl you're playing the video game on medium and you need to be playing it on hard or expert. So, you know, that, you know, you want to be playing more of the, you know, high level events, maybe on magic online, um, and getting out to events like opens and grand prix and things like that. Uh, and maybe trying to connect with the players in your area, uh, and start forming a, you know a team or at least a testing you know team uh, if not a formal team with them so that you can be around people who are better than you because like Tan said if you're just playing against people that are worse than you you know you, you might you know you're you're always going to get a little bit better you're going to start seeing more and more things but the rate at which you get better is going to plateau and it seems say, like yeah. it has you know that's what the the premise of the question seems to be that it, your your improvement is plateaued and like. You know, it's sort of the analog of like when you're when you start to plateau in like fitness, if you're trying to build muscle or lose weight or whatever, like you got to switch things up. Right. That's and a very good analog. Yeah. So here, like you just got to switch things up and make things a little bit harder on yourself. You got to increase the difficulty level, increase the resistance. You know, sa same idea. Yeah, absolutely. And the last question from fin fr eh, Friendly Fire 21. God, freaking alliteration gets you sometimes when you're trying to talk quickly. Uh, selfish question. I don't know why it's selfish. It's just a good question. Why did Bant Spirit see so much play over blue-white at the PTs, or at least it seemed like it did? So I don't have the exact numbers of, like, it played versus other one. I think Ross might find it or whatever. The, it just seemed like the Bant Spirits that did much better, or all the good players who played Spirits played Bant Spirits. Uh, two words, Collected Company. Uh, that seems why. That card is really powerful. It looks and like in Brussels we had 6% Azorius and about 2% Bant. And in Nagoya we had... Um, ooh, where are they? I don't even see any spirits decks here in Nagoya for day one. Oh, blue white spirits seven point three percent, and Bant is beneath a percent. So th there was significantly less Bant in the field. Uh, but you saw Bant do a lot better. Uh, over uh, and like the win rates bear that out. Bant Spirits won sixty percent of his matches across both Pro Tours. Azoria Spirits is only at fifty percent. Um, so, you know that that's pretty significant difference. Although, well, not statistically significant, but you know it, it's eye popping to us. And uh, yeah, like Tannen said, you know, 
I mean, it's it's not like there's a lot different here, right? They're the same deck. One has Collected Company and a couple of fewer spirits. So, like, clearly Collected Company is the card that it, that is putting the green deck over the top. We talked a bit about Banter earlier in the show, uh, and I'll reiterate here that Collected Company is a card that really helps you catch up if you fall behind. It's also just a really powerful magic card in a tribal deck that's trying to achieve a critical mass of spirits. So, like... It's just a really, really good card in the deck, so it just raised the deck's power level a bit, and you really didn't sacrifice much in the mana. You know, the Azorius deck's mana was already not good because it's a friendly color in Pioneer. So, you know, adding the Bant deck and getting access to all these Simic lands doesn't really affect the mana base that much besides having to give up the two or three Mutal Alts that you were playing before. So it's a trade-off of Mutal Alt versus Collected Company. I know that Mutal Alt, super powerful card, one of the best cards, I think, in all of Pioneer. Collected Company is just better in this deck. It really is. Especially because it's a deck of all flyers. So Mutavolt just gives you an extra ground attacker, which is kind of awkward. Collected Company is just perfect for the deck. Absolutely. So Ross, if people wanted to hear more from you about Pioneer, read some of these articles that you were talking about, or watch some of that Versus Live that you mentioned on the show, where would they do that? So, uh, I first things first, uh, you can find me personally on Twitter. I'm at Ross Hunneds. That's R-O-S-S-H-U-N-N-E-D-S. I do try to answer to people as much as I can. So if you have questions, you know, about whatever, you feel free to follow me and ask them there. Uh, if you'd like to read my articles, they go up on Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern, you know, real time, uh, on StarCityGames.com. Uh, like I said earlier in the show, this week's column is all reflections from Richmond. So if you want to hear about my mono red deck, you know, expanded thoughts on what I said here. Uh, you want to read about Jake Mandela's mono red deck or Chris Marshall's Heliod Company deck. Uh, all of my thoughts, updated lists for both of those, also in the article. Uh, so you can catch that there. And uh, I appreciate any and all support. Uh, and in addition, I also co-host Versus Live with Corey Baumeister. That happens live Tuesday and Thursdays, 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time uh, on twitch.tv slash Games, which is the same channel you go to to watch open coverage. So we're there during the week. We play whatever things we think are relevant. Played a lot of these decks in the Pro Tour today. Uh, so you're going to want to catch that. Uh, you know, It'll go on the Star City Games YouTube channel on Friday. Thursday shows go up the following Monday if you can't catch them live. This Thursday, we're going to be playing another team battle. Last week, we did two team constructed battles, and we split them. So this is our rubber match leading into SCG Philadelphia. So you'll have to see some of our picks for those three formats heading into the next week of all of those formats and their evolution from what happened last weekend. Awesome. If you wanted to hear more from me, follow me on Twitter. That's at the Tannen Grace. Uh, lots of tweets about lots of things, uh, mostly about magic, though. Let's be real. Um, baseball season's coming up real soon, though. Spring training starts in like a week. So. There's going to be a lot of tweets about baseball. So, there's already been a lot of tweets about baseball <laughs> Ross. <laughs> Let's be real. Um, if you want some more of just, if you can't get enough of Cast Pioneer, which I hope you can't, because I know I can't. I look forward to this every week. Our Twitter Twitter handle is at CastPioneer. If you search for PioneerCast, you can find it too. Um, inside that Twitter, you will find a link for our Discord. Our Discord is hopping, Ross. It's pretty important that people get in there, get to be talking. Really it's pretty. There's yeah, over pretty, 500 people in it, maybe 600. I, like, I think the number keeps going up, by the yeah. way. I think I think we're more like 700 or something. I need to find the actual number, which I don't know how to do somehow because I'm I'm old and technology frightens me. I fear I fear change, Ross. I fear change. But don't we all? Um, Lots of cool things going on there. Lots of really cool. Uh, I'm using the word cool a lot. A lot, a lot of really interesting channels. Uh, one of my personal favorites, you heard us mention earlier, there's a food channel. Um, pretty cool thing. If we don't have time for it in the show, which I kind of deemed we didn't this week, I thought we would go a little bit longer. Um, there's a food section. 
And Ross will gladly tell you the places you should be eating at if you're going to be traveling to certain cities, especially if they're like the stop on the tour the next week. Oh, I forgot to do that for Richmond last week. And there's yeah, we we, we both kind of dropped the ball in that. I'll do, I'll do it for Philly. There's not a ton around Philly, uh, though. But I've I need to look up the I need to look up the names, but we can definitely help out because like you're kind of sequestered in this like weird little area. You know, for Philly, like especially if you don't want to go too far, you're kind of SOL or like a lot of stuff. So, um, definitely, there's I, like like here you go. Here's here's a good one in Philly. Uh, what's the name of the Italian restaurant? I can't I can't even think of it. It's um it's like a person's name, like a very Italian name, but it's one of the ones. It's like the best value for Magic players. Like they'll love this. You can go there and you can get a pasta dish for dinner. But it's one of the places where like Magianos. Magianos. When you order your dish, at the end of it, they bring you another one, like to go. And I'll tell you this, if you stay on site, they have microwaves and fridges in the room. So there you go. Two yeah. for one. Every every, every magic player looks like a two places, for one. Normally places that do stuff like that are not that good. Magiano's, you know. It's very some, passable. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's, yeah, it's, it's not it's, like it's, insane. But it's it's not insane, but it was good. Like I had the uh, padella vodka with like spicy uh, sausage or something. In it. I will say this, it was a little bit too spicy. I was like, whoa, it was like not ready for it, but... I'm good. happy eating there once over the course of a Magic weekend. Yeah, yeah. If you're there, like, you know, for BCW stuff, we're usually there, like, early on Fridays, you know, there for, like, three full days, you know, kind of thing. So, uh, but anyway, make sure you follow uh, follow us on Twitter. Join our Discord. We do have a Patreon channel in the Discord where only our patrons um, can be involved. You get you get access to us. Ross puts up his deck list with sideboard guides. That's what happened last week. I'm sure he'll try to do the same this week if he can in time. If not, he'll get it up there as soon as possible. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash pioneercast. Um, I kind of want to talk about this just a second. So uh, hopefully pe- people haven't uh, zoned out because we do this little spiel at the end of every show. The stuff that we've been uh, alluding to for about the last month and a half, the new stuff coming to the Patreon, is coming very soon. Ross and I saw the artwork that we've been working, that we've had uh, being worked on for a while. We saw that today. The artwork is, would you would you classify it as dope shit? I thought it was pretty good. I I would indeed. Yeah, it was it was pretty sweet. Um, there's another thing coming that Ross and I have been in the works for. A uh, lot of stuff behind the scenes for that because we have to a find out if Ross could legally do some of the things that we've been talking about, and uh, that if I have time and effort to put in, I was going to try to put an implement last week. So there's a chance that it starts even this week, and that will be another Patreon tier that you can kind of. Um, help support us for and then if that goes well then even more stuff starts happening down the line i don't want to give away too much because i don't want to uh over promise and under deliver i'd rather do the other way around usually for people so keep on the lookout for that uh i should be able to get it done this week i, sh- I should be able to get the, the first time of this happening this week i should have enough time i'm really hoping so so i might need your help a little bit with it ross i know you're super busy but it hopefully won't take too much time from you you just yeah. like read something, you know. Like, I got you. I got you. Right, cool, I can always cool. make time for you, Tannen. Oh God, just whisper sweet nothings into my ear, baby. <laughs> Hopefully, Natalie never listens to this. <laughs> anyway, I'm hoping she does. You never know where it could lead. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, you know what's hilarious? There's been a dog barking in like the background of like yours for almost the entire show. It's usually the other way around. Usually, Benny's over here like barking. Yeah, my neighbors have a dog they let out in the backyard, and oh. Yeah, I remember this one. Another cool thing, um, if, if again, if you're still listening to the show, I'm sure some people just turn it off when it gets to this point. Um, it's not 100%, but we're about 99% for Ross and Brendan DeCandy are going to be coming visit me at the uh, end of March and spend some time down in the New Orleans, Baton Rouge area. We're going to be hanging out. Um, that's The days that Ross is here are not the actual normal days that we record an episode of, uh, of PioneerCast, but... 
might be able to get a little something fun and cool and stuff done down here. So uh, at the least, give us some cool ideas if you have some idea of because like, you know, we're not going to be seeing each other as much as we normally do in person. Uh, so, yeah, so like we'll definitely have to sign a bunch of these tokens when we get them and, and do some other stuff while we're in, while we're uh, in each other's space, as you like to put it. So uh, maybe we can figure out something fun, maybe a fun episode, even with Brennan involved. So something cool would be done there. Since we make fun of him so, so much on the show, we probably should. It's true. We do do that. He probably should get ro- some royalty rights at this point. No, he honestly. deserves it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But anyway, uh, that about does it for this week's episode. Uh, I'm really looking forward to next week's because we got you and another open. We're going to see if people can, hey, let's see if they can beat Inverter or if it really is a menace that might need to have something done about it. In this format, we got another player's tour. Uh, this one in it's Arizona, right, Phoenix? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, super excited about watching that this weekend as well. Can't wait. So uh, until then, goodbye. We'll see you next week. <laughs>